Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that couldn't have even happened here on Sunday because we're closed on Sundays. <laughs> Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File. Merry Christmas, and I am here, as always, with my horny Hungarian, Joe <laughs> Reed. So horny. Okay. That so scene, oh yes, but also the scene with the two of them where they first meet, where he first meets Nicole Kidman's character, and like I get that she's also like several champagnes into the evening, but like it's so the cool. most, and I'm pretty sure this is intentional, <laughs> or it's just sort of a sign of like Nicole Kidman breaking down under Kubrick's, you know, insane multiple takes or whatever. Neither one of them are behaving like actual human beings, where they're just like, she's so, like, her method of flirting is, like, flirt like you've read it in a manual or whatever, where she's just like, oh, I don't know. Like, well, she's all, like, very, like, demonstrative or whatever. And he's coming up with, like, these most sort of, like, leering come-ons or whatever. And I'm like, this is all incredibly awkward and over over gestured and everything and that was my main takeaway from that scene this time in fairness like, to her wooziness i mean she probably has an ocular migraine from all of the festive seasonal lighting oh she i have thoughts about the seasonal lighting appropriately yeah also the hungarian probably would be maybe 40 percent as sexy in like natural lighting mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's just a whole overcast vibe happening. The lighting in that in that particular party with like the bright white, it's the only place where you see white Christmas lights because every other place where you see Christmas lights, they are multicolored Christmas lights. And that's very it's one of my favorite details of the movie is that like this these sort of like opulent rich spaces either have no Christmas lights and is very like you know, the Fidelio party or whatever, where it's just, like, you know, torches and whatnot. Or it's these, like, blinding white Christmas lights, and everything else are these, like, very warm, you know, rainbow-colored lights in dark spaces that look very pretty and very sort of, you know, um, inviting. The but- Fidelio party being lit by, as you mentioned, torches, body heat, and embers from the doorway to the gateway to hell. Um if gays, if circuit gays had better taste, there would be a monthly warehouse party somewhere called Fidelio. Like it is really surprising to me. Not surprising to me, but like it's not surprising that circuit gays don't have better taste. But like, 
we'll talk about the whole Fidelio thing. I, yeah. I mean, it, it couldn't be less sexy intentionally so. But you mentioned that the Hungarian who doesn't have a name, we're just going to call him the Hungarian, and Nicole Kidman's character are not behaving like normal human beings. To they are not. Say, Welcome to people in a Stanley Kubrick movie. Well, yeah. Welcome to this entire Stanley Kubrick movie. <laughs> Welcome to this thing. specific Stanley Kubrick movie. The yeah. only conceivable human being is also a monster, and that's the Sidney Pollock character. Who, like, well, Sidney Pollock, I think, is incapable of not just being Sidney Pollock. So it's yeah. like, he's a, he's a conceivable human, because it's like, well, yeah, that's Sidney Pollock. It does make it all the more upsetting when it's just like, Sidney Pollock, like, almost killed this girl with a speedball, and now she's, like, nearly dead in his bathroom, and he just, like, had sex with her. Like, with his suspenders. I'm like, Sidney Pollock, you've disappointed me. Not the, di- not the director of the firm. My God. <laughs> Talk um, about the firm, honey. Don't know. Um, uh, there's only, I would say, maybe three sexy things in this movie. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but yeah. the three sexy things are Kidman's monologue about how she's just horny for this guy she saw. Yeah. The end of the movie where she's like, well, we could go have sex. Right. And then Sidney Pollock's suspender. Oh, God. Unfortunately, given the context of the movie. I did enjoy the fact that there was, like, one gay male coupling at the sex party, which, like, we're when we get into the Fidelio talk, I have thoughts on that. But um, uh, that was at least nice the that they got to dance. The time, as did everyone in the culture, whether well, they had seen the movie or not, before the movie was released, after yeah. it was released. We should also mention that we are now officially the last podcast to do an episode on Eyes Wide Shut. We are. We kept pushing it off and kept pushing it off. We, every, now every single podcast that has ever talked about movies and maybe even a lot of podcasts that don't talk about movies primarily have done episodes on Eyes Wide Shut. Blank Check has done one. I imagine the big picture has done like 12 uh, by now. The it definitive always... one is came out this year uh, with Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This, which actually was right. two episodes. Right. Uh, it's come up on screen drafts a whole bunch. They've done, you know, podcast like it's 99 has, has done their episode on it. So, like, we are now the last horse out of the barn. We are the final. Long I'm not going to. by our listeners, especially yeah. at Christmas time. Here we are on Christmas Day. Uh, and I am probably the one. Of the two of us who have dragged my feet on this the most, because I never quite know what to say about this movie. I've, I've, my opinion on it has definitely evolved. I was definitely one of those sort of cretins who, at all of, you know, 19 years old, saw that movie and was, and was like, that sucked. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I watched that and it was, I was the very typical person who, was sold a bill of goods on this movie where I was expecting it's not like I I mean part of me I guess was like I'm gonna I'm expecting the movie that it, it, you must remember this talked about this a lot about like they sold this movie essentially on like go watch the most famous couple in the world fuck on screen and I guess I was sort of but like I think the thing that I was more expecting was a movie about a shadowy cabal running a sex party and then like him getting to the bottom of it. And of course, that's not what the movie is about at all. That's, you know, a pretense. 
or a pretext Fidelio more Party than anything. Is like the act one finale. There's a whole other hour after that happens. Well, there's a whole other hour before he even hears about this party where he even goes to see Todd Field perform at that little club. So it's like it is in the grand scheme of things very thematically important. But like plot wise, it is a much smaller part of the movie. And I was really sort of thrown and let down by that. And as I've watched this movie, I've watched this movie maybe four times over the course of my lifetime, maybe five. Um, I've certainly learned to appreciate it more and to see sort of what Kubrick is doing and appreciate it for the sum of its parts. I still have never gotten to the sort of all-consuming enthusiasm for this movie that a lot of people have. And as such, I'm not really super thrilled to have to put that on wax, essentially, and just sort of like, you know, uh, uh, for all for all time, lay down my um, appreciative, but sort of my heart's not in it thoughts on a movie that a lot of people really, really genuinely love. And like, not only love, but like, defend in this very sort of like fierce way because it had been so because of, misunderstood. Because of the immediate reaction right. after the movie was released, which like, we'll talk about some of that and the build up to this movie. Like, yeah. Uh, this is a, a very definitively mismarketed or maybe foolishly marketed movie, I, I should say. This is not a movie that should have basically, basically be like a mystery box movie. We've talked about movies that I'm like, they present, they're presented to audiences like a mystery yeah. box movie. Like, what is this object we're about to discover? And you can understand the appeal, especially for a filmmaker to be like, uh, to withhold information about what audiences are going to see. We talked a lot about this when uh, back in our 100th episode on Mother mm-hmm. and how this can really, really backfire for a movie like this. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut wasn't even screened for press until days before it opened wide, yeah. Yeah. which is a horrible idea. You know, the press doesn't mm-hmm. even have any time whatsoever to really kind of sit and reflect on it they can only have an immediate reaction of all the weird movies to have ever opened at can it's wild that this one didn't because this one because even if it had a bad reaction then you then you chalk that reaction up to like well it's can you know what i mean like well but yeah i mean i don't think kubrick had any relationship with can who cares in his that- lifetime too that it wouldn't have, that it you know it would have played there i don't think it eventually played Venice after it had already opened, but like yeah. in and out of competition kind of, you know, vanity slot. And I think this is why you see in a lot of the reviews from the time the, that they're in reviews of the film where they're supposed to be critiquing the film. They go so far into the context in which the movie was launched. Right. Because like everybody's talking about the censorship of the fidelio sequence mm-hmm. and they're talk it, like it's hard to not find one that's talking about the production of the movie which was incredibly well publicized and kind of hounded for you know the length of the filming not to defend mismarketing and not to defend sort of the the kind of leering gaze that went into this movie i think on a couple levels, if I'm Warner Brothers, and my choices are to sell a psychosexually ponderous movie about a man who continually doesn't have sex throughout this movie, 
or I have the most famous couple in the world making out naked in front of a mirror. Like, I know how I'm going to sell this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't entirely blame Warner Brothers for selling the movie this way. And I also can't entirely blame the press for lingering on what was a Guinness World Record long movie shoot, you know what I mean? Where the director Which some of that was died. All inflated and misreported as well. Karina Longworth goes into a lot of detail there, if I remember correctly from those episodes. So it's like there there was an unfair treatment of this movie in the press as it was being filmed. But as far as the marketing is concerned, to my understanding, it was a lot more in Kubrick's court, not to doubt a uh, as Manola kind of side-eyes genius, um, but a lot of Warner executives didn't have, because Kubrick is Kubrick and he has the level of control, mm-hmm. they hadn't seen the movie until he was done with it and then died. Or right. like they saw a version of it shortly before he was done with it. So they right. didn't really know what they were marketing either. I I mean, I I think all of this creates this kind of perfect storm for a movie to be wildly misinterpreted and, and yet made not good money. prime the audience for what they're going to see in a way that makes them actively hostile towards this. This is a movie that got a D-minus cinema score. I'm not surprised. Here's the other thing is like this is a mo- this is not a movie that is intent on giving you what you want. Like it's he knows what he's doing with this movie. He knows how he is sort of presenting sex in this movie as this kind of centerpiece. But like it's also just like repeated scenes of again Tom Cruise who he cast for a reason, you know what I mean? 100 and, you know, going on this sort of, like, odyssey through the city where he, you know, once again, repeatedly doesn't have sex. You know what I mean? Like, this is, <laughs> like, that's the whole point of the movie. So it's like... But, I, like, not to be, like, is emasculated, but, like, his version of masculine sexuality or, like, his horny brain is, like, actively dismantled in every single scene of this movie. Mm. Um in a way that's so entwined with Tom Cruise's star persona and our perception of Tom Cruise and his hangups. Like, Mm -hmm. this movie, I think, almost remains more fascinating today as a Tom Cruise document than a Stanley Kubrick one. Yes. Um, Also, because it's like... Watch this movie in Vanilla Sky back-to-back sometime and, like, watch watch your perceptions of Tom Cruise (laughs) really go for a roller coaster. Yeah. This is also a Tom Cruise that we, I believe, we will never have again. No. Because it's, you had this, Magnolia in the same year, and to a lesser degree, Vanilla Sky. I mean, Vanilla Sky was him reuniting with Cameron Crowe. It's a strange movie. It's a movie that's interested in it's Tom a mo- Cruise's screen persona. But- as vanity, more so than as a sexual being. Like, even by Vanilla Sky, I think he had decided... I'm not like my that that version of He's myself as an actor is as gone. An actor with that movie sure. too. It's but a I do think movie, but like on a that level, it's not risky. It's not him looking inward in really any substantive way. I would argue watching Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia coming out back to back in 1999 really is a sort of um, 
like burn the fields and salt the earth of Tom Cruise as a sexual being where <laughs> like eyes wide shut dismantles it. And then Magnolia really curdles it. You know what I mean? Because in Magnolia, his whole presence as a sexual being is this like dot, like dominant male, you know, uh, art of the pickup kind of a person, but it really is just like, virulent misogyny that is like barely concealed if it is even concealed and all because daddy didn't love me you know right and so all of a sudden after that it sort of becomes impossible to no pun intended um to view tom cruise through a anything a, len, a lens any as anything other than a sexless action star the thing that makes me gasp every time is when he gets gay bashed by. <laughs> That's the funniest I, goddamn scene. It's so, it, it is really funny, but it it also works in tandem the because straightness it's like, it of is this a movie. sexual thing. This like gaggle of straight men who like multiple times throw gay epithets at him. But the thing that I forget every time I watch it and makes me gasp every time is they make fun of his height and like. You know Stanley Kubrick knew what he was doing because one hundred percent, who was one hundred percent five eight. Yep, he was always that, and like the stories were that's always not a that short like short person, but like by right. Hollywood standards, the thing is always like, well, Tom, you know, Tom's height, Tom's height, you know, whether or not that actually bothers him as a person. Yeah, it was a very famous sensitivity of his, where like it was known. It's not always known, you know, what sort of hangups and sensitivities actors are, but like. People knew even then that Tom Cruise was sensitive about his height as a leading man, as a very short leading man. It was it was like Snaggletooth, he took care of that. Height couldn't couldn't figure that one out, couldn't figure out a way around that one. Um uh, I am like this is our what, twelfth, thirteenth Kidman movie. So like I think we'll we've probably done more Kidman movies than Meryl Streep. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> we've done more Kidman movies than anybody. Um so I think we'll probably end up delving more severely into Cruise in this, although to get it out of the way, Kidman's incredible. And this was, I think this was the, I think after To Die For, and because nobody really watched The Portrait of a Lady, um, I think she needed this second movie to sort of like really cement that like she had the goods, you know what you I mean? You could also Where- credit Portrait of a Lady too, um, because like those those feel while those are great performances, it does feel like it's setting the stage for this. And I mean, they started filming this movie in 1996, so you can maybe attach those movies, right? But I movie to those movies more than you could later. But you watch her performance in this movie, and it feels like the start of something. It feels like the start of something major and it it was because she i mean in the interim of this movie's filming which like she's not as in as nearly as much of this movie as cruise but like things like practical magic come out in the interim but after this movie's release there's nothing until moulin rouge and the others when she skyrockets and like she gets the appreciation for those movies she doesn't get bad reviews for this movie i mean most of even the negative reviews i think have positive things to say about her but it does feel like as far as awards go, they really missed the mark in not recognizing her, even for a movie that wasn't as well-liked at the time. I suppose we should get to table setting. 
before we just delve right the hell in <laughs> before we before we go on an odyssey through finger London? quotes new york city yeah. by that we mean pinewood studios backlot yeah. <laughs> it's it's also mostly the same street if not like just a bunch of similar looking streets it's it's interesting to, and it's a lot of those scenes are set in uh, the West Village, where there are actually streets where you can see the ends, like both ends of the street in the same sort of two shot, which like is generally pretty rare. New York has a lot of very sort of like long avenues and sort of long uh, cross streets that you don't really ever see the end to and like Greenwich Village really is the exception where it's like you can be on a street with a bunch of shops where like you know Greenwich Avenue is on one side on one end and 7th Avenue is on the other or something like that um it is a bit Greenwich Village by way of Amsterdam in Pinewood oh, yes. Studios <laughs> oh yes like it's and there the is lights don't help that <laughs> Right. I mean, there is there is it's fabulous, so I shouldn't say that like it's a pejorative. But there's an essential sort of falseness to it. And and yeah. that's mostly because Kubrick didn't want to leave England and it was a lot cheaper to make that movie in England. Uh, Sidney Pollack has talked about how um jealous he was that Kubrick was able to make, you know, to shoot for a year and a half and and have the budget only be about what it would take to film for 20 days somewhere in the United States or something like that. So. It sounds like on in, during some of the shooting, it really was also a very minimal crew to right. for portions of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Before we do the table setting, would you like to uh, take a minute to talk about our wonderful Patreon? Yes, I would, in fact. Uh, this had Oscar Buzz Turbulent Brilliance is our $5 a month Patreon bonus uh, podcast. It will allow you access to two bonus episodes of this had Oscar Buzz per month, one of which will be us covering a film that we would love to cover on the main flagship, but we have so much integrity that we can't cover anything on the flagship show that has any kind of Oscar nominations whatsoever. So we'll cover on the Patreon a movie like The Mirror Has Two Faces, which only had two uh, Oscar nominations, but in general still was a an Oscar letdown. We've also covered movies like Australia uh, with our friend Katie Rich. We talked about The Lovely Bones, which was a patron-voted uh, entry. That was a very fun one. Uh, we talked about Pleasantville. We talked about Nine. The other episode every month is a more format breaking where we a little bit go off the the regular uh, format of our uh, episodes we'll talk about things like uh old awards shows like the 1996 MTV Movie Awards we'll do a discussion about uh the awards race which is going to which is up already now yes as we as we record this and certainly as you listen to this uh you can go listen to our thoughts on the current Oscar race, which is really, really heating up as we talk about this. We'll talk about um, um, uh, Hollywood Reporter actress roundtables, or you know, uh, Chris going to Magic Mike Live. There's a whole lot of 
interesting little directions I think we're going to take those excursion episodes as we go ahead. So uh, as you roll on into the new year, if you want to give yourself the Christmas gift, the holiday gift that keeps on giving, $5 a month will get you a whole lot. Plus we have call-in episodes. We've got a whole hot, a whole ass hotline where people can call in and we're sort of posting little mini response episodes during the week. So you'll get all of that Line. as well. You'll be able to vote in uh, patron polls. And we've got a lot we'll of- a new one. We should do another poll soon. We should. We should. We've got a lot of little uh, uh, ideas. We had a whole little uh, brainstorming sesh the other day about what to bring in 2024. So there's really fun stuff. You'll want to get in on that. And it's a really fun time. The other thing that I find underrated is we don't really have forums and and, uh, Twitter has has proved to be an ever less ideal place to talk about things. And like the comments on our patron. Posts almost as if uh, Twitter is a platform that is uh, bleeding almost if. subscribers. But I'm really enjoying reading the comments on our patron uh, posts. Everybody's got some really good little uh, additional thoughts, and and it's it's a fun and friendly place. And we are very proud of our Garys for and that. We love hearing from you. Yes, exactly. So join us, won't you? And uh, sign up for this at Oscar Buzz. Turbulent Brilliance, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash this had Oscar buzz. Fabulous. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. This week on Christmas. Yeah. Who knows if anybody's actually listening on Christmas. (laughs) May we be your distraction. Yeah, this is coming out on actual Christmas Day, huh? Oh, wow. There we go. Yeah. 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 If you need the distraction from crazy family, we're here for you. <laughs> if we are, if you want to play this coffee, for the whole family, like after gifts have been opened, you know what? Sit down with the whole family, kids, grandparents, yep. all of them, and all watch of them. eyes wide shut. Why not? Uh, I remember when this movie came out. I should say, mm-hmm. I was not allowed to see the movie. I was too young. Did you ask to go see this movie and were denied? Yes. Amazing. I love that. I probably would have been like, that was amazing because <laughs> I was like just discovering Kubrick. Sure. I discovered Kubrick through his death, I should say. Sure. And I was yeah. like, wait, who is this? Who is this guy? I should I guess I should see these movies and watched a letterboxed 2001 on a 12 inch TV that had a VCR in it, in the little box unit. Yeah. Not the ideal way to see that movie. I'm trying to think of like what my what my Stanley Kubrick uh, awareness was. Certainly by that time, by the time Eyes Wide Shut comes out in '99, I'd have already read The Shining, which means I would have watched The Shining, so I would have seen that. Um, the Simpsons had done multiple um, Doctor Strange love jokes, yeah. you know, so I was sort of aware of. That plus my dad really liked Doctor Strangelove too. Um, Spaceballs did that. Spaceballs did that 2001 joke where they went to Plaid. Remember the one where the spaceship flies past them and it's the it's whatever. So like all the sort of like jokes, but also I remember in junior high, um, Full Metal Jacket had come out several years like a few years before full metal jacket comes out in 87 i'm in junior high around like 92 ish 
Um, but for whatever reason, a handful of the like cooler boys um got really into quoting Full Metal Jacket. Um, because they oh, had yikes. watched it and they were like, yeah, which was like Ooh. the whole thing. Imagine teenage boys misunderstanding that movie. Uh-huh. Um, so I was aware of that, but I I didn't see Full Metal Jacket until maybe only even like within the last 10 years did I see Full Metal Jacket for the first time. I mean, my concept of Full Metal Jacket when I was younger was basically the training first third of the movie and then everything uh-huh. else was kind of wiped out of my brain. And even yeah. still... When I rewatch that movie, it's like, oh, I don't remember much of this. And yeah. Metal Jacket, which was, you know, 12 years before Eyes Wide Shut, it was the yeah. last, it, you know, 12 year gap between movies, which is a huge part of the anticipation behind Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. And like Eyes Wide Shut was kind of a Oscar disappointment. There's a ton of Vietnam movies. Oh, yeah. I think even still in the culture, you know, it's. Oh, Full Metal Jacket, you mean, was an Oscar disappointment. Yes, definitely. Yes, yeah. yes. It's just an adapted screenplay nominee. Right. Um, But, it, you know, I think even still today it gets compared or, like, stacked alongside Platoon, because Platoon is yes. Best Picture Oscar winner. I think that movie was the year is before a it. Yeah. miles better movie than Platoon, even though... I've never seen Platoon, interestingly enough. At some point I will. It's a Best Picture winner. I'm going to want to see it, but yeah. Right. Um, it's a much better movie than Platoon, much better movie than, like, most of the Vietnam movies uh, of that yeah. time. Yeah. But, so, it's like, you know, Oscar kind of got sick of those movies a little bit. Yeah. People saw that just generally as a disappointment. I think it's safe to say it's one of the weakest uh, Kubrick movies, with the exception of, like, I haven't seen some of the earlier ones, even though I know that they're like on yeah. Criterion and such. But I know yeah. Kubrick hated those movies, so I right. don't feel so compelled to watch uh, like his first two features. I'd never seen Spartacus, but I was like pretty sure I had heard that Kubrick had directed it, and so that was my winning question to win the like for all the marbles Trivial Pursuit game in high school, and it was <laughs> easily one of my most proud accomplishments in high school. And for so, many reasons, it's one of the least interesting Kubrick movies. For many reasons, yeah. Because it's one of the least Kubrick Kubrick movies. Right. I mean, like, it it kind of set his methodology for his career because, like, that was not his movie. It was a studio movie. and Yeah. You know, but, like, that doing that movie probably helped him get Lolita made. But then Lolita is also a very informative movie for the rest of his career. And I think informative for Eyes Wide Shut as well. Yeah. Because of the limitations dealing with such controversial material, mm-hmm. you know, when they made that movie, it's kind of, str- it, it's so wild that it kind of exists, um, even though it's not the closest <laughs> adaptation you've ever seen in your life. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Listeners, we're here talking about Stanley Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut written and directed by the master Mr. Kubrick, also written by Frederick Raphael, who would later go on to write a heavily, uh, what would you say, uh, you know, criticized and uh, given a certain lack of uh, authenticity memoir about his experience working oh. with Kubrick that, you know, sure. many people said was bullshit. Uh, 
all based on the novella Trom Novelle by Arthur Schnitzler, which is what translates to dream story, I believe. Sure. Which is that fits. what Eyes Wide Shut is, starring yes. Mr. Thomas Cruz, Ms. Nicole Kidman, Sidney Pollock, Todd Field. We'll get into it. Uh, how do you pronounce Rade Zerbergia's name? I think it's... My apologies. Zerbergia? Yes. Uh, you know, the guy who played a lot of, like, Russian spies in movies in the 90s? That he looks like a vampire. Yes. Yes. He looks yeah, like yeah. he should be wearing a floor-length um, coat made of actual bear skin that he killed with his bare hands, but also He is always a, looks like he was the hottest vampire 15 years ago. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Vanessa Shaw, Lily Sobieski, Marie Richardson, horny Hungarian Sky DeMont, Alan, horny Alan Cumming. Horny Alan Cumming is my favorite, yeah. And the voice of Kate Blanchett. Okay, remind me which masked woman Kate Blanchett is voicing. The one who's like, you have to get out of here. The first no, one. Danger. Stop! The one no. who saves his life. It wasn't that Australian of an accent. No, she she puts on an American dialect for it. Willikers, mister, you gotta get out of here. You have to get out of here. You're in danger. <laughs> the first one who comes up to him, and yeah. Can't yeah. imagine a... No, it's not. It's it's all her. I realize you can't... When she takes off her underwear, it seems like maybe this is a different woman. No, it's her. No, but Thank the one... Wait, the one who volunteers to... Volunteers as tribute? Oh, we volunteer that's not the actual woman from the first scene where she overdoses, even though that's no, that, that character? No, that character, that's not her. It's that character. But Kate Blanchett voices her. Gotcha. Okay. Did not catch This that. only recently, like, semi-recently came out, or maybe it was known, and then we completely forgot about it and never talked about it for 15 yeah. years. Yeah. Um, the movie opened wide... Giant neon sign, LOL. Yeah. July 16th, 1999. Summer movie season. This movie opened the same weekend as Muppets in Space. Had American Pie already opened by this point? Was American Pie already, like, in theaters? I could, think Could so. you see the, the, the wide spectrum of American sexuality in one day and see American Pie and... Janet Maslin in her review of this movie calls calls it the summer of the dirty joke. (laughs) Let me pull up this box office again. I just remembered that Muppets in Space opened the same weekend because I was like, well, you know, kind of the same movie. I've never seen Muppets in Space. You know what? Those Muppets, they sure were in space. Uh, Way to do that space. But I mean, everyone is an alien and a sock pocket sock puppet in this movie sock can't pocket. even tell a joke without ruining it slop bucket yes american pie was number two at the box office the weekend yeah. that this opened at number one yeah and so then that's plummeted that is a uh that is a uh that's a weekend right there you know i mean Maslin calls it the summer of the dirty joke. I almost feel like Eyes Wide Shut is uniquely unprepared to open in this market to this audience because, like, this does feel somewhat like a 
resetting of summer movie season because summer movie like you know ever since jaws you know summer movies were a thing Mm. and like summer blockbusters were whatever but this feels like a unique ip summer partly because of star wars episode one but you also have things like the spy who shagged me south park right now American really pie. kind of investing audiences in, you know, known properties. Oh, I see known property Bulls. stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and before that, even you had sort of the established Will Smith. Well, Will Smith had another had another one. Wild who, like, Wild West, which Wild, was Wild existing IP. Mm-hmm. And also go. a bomb. But well, yeah. not a bomb because that movie made like a hundred million dollars. It was just a it was a horrible movie, but here's the hill something. I'm gonna die on with Wild Wild West. Better title song than Men in Black. I agree. Okay. I Glad agree. We, do. we, we do. as a culture all have to agree. Gary's, if you do not agree, I'm sorry you've been voted off the island. <laughs> um speaking of speaking of our um you mentioned our call-ins when talking about our Patreon. How shocking yes. is it to you that we have not gotten any survivor questions? Yeah, that is surprising. Considering how often we we de- we uh, do the detour. Gary's not watch Survivor. Um, I imagine some of them do. It's gotten so the popularity has really rebounded. We are Survivor uh, Gary's get at us anyway. We're just here finishing a about great eyes season. Wide shut. Yeah. Not Survivor. We're recording this right before the finale. So eyes wide shut is in its own way uh, a game of Survivor, and that Survivor is the ultimate Fidelio party. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't. No, I can't go down that road. I can't go down that you road. Have your, Not with you Austin have... and Jake on my mind. I can't. I can't uh, go down that road. Oh, then then we, then we should just you know take the other avenue, the other fork in the road. Uh, Joe, are you yes. ready to give a sixty second plot description of Eyes Wide Shut? As I look at the dense paragraphs that I prepared in front of me, no, but um, sure. we'll give it a go. You know. Stanley Kubrick was not uh, limited to 60 seconds either. So that's true. I think it's fine. Yeah, here's my 100 takes worth of my Eyes Wide Shut plot description. <laughs> what if this entire episode was 100 takes of you giving a 60 second plot description of this movie? I would also get divorced soon after because I would, I would get married just <laughs> to get divorced, just to have a major life breakdown. Divorced from reality? Yeah, like, yes. From- divorced from my mind. I would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yes, yeah. Cool. All right, your 60 second plot description of Eyes Wide Shut starts now. We open on Nicole Kidman's butt, what we never see Tom Cruise's. Why? Because cowardice. Anyway, Tom and Nicole, amid the dying embers of their marriage, play Bill and Alice Harford, a doctor and his wife who attend a fancy Christmas party thrown by Victor, a wealthy friend of theirs. At the party, Alice flirts with a Hungarian playboy while Bill helps Victor with a naked woman he was having sex with in his bathroom, who's overdosed. The next night after getting stoned, Alice begins to prod at Bill about whether other women want to fuck him, and she gets really pissed when he rejects the idea of being a jealous husband because she'd never cheat on him to retaliate. Alice tells a story of a hot young naval officer from their, their vacation to Cape Cod, who she's fantasized about fucking and running away with. This makes Bill lose his mind and go off on an odyssey through fake New York, sometimes trying to have an affair, but mostly just wishing he wanted to have an affair. He finds out from his piano-playing friend Todd Field about this secret sex party with the password Fidelio, and Bill goes there in a taxi and scams his way into the party, which is full of people in rooms and Venetian masks holding rituals with naked women before breaking out into an orgy. Bill, despite his mask, is singled out easily and seems like they're going to either kill him or run a train on him, but this, un- ma- this masked lady volunteers to take his place and he leaves. The next day, he retraces his steps to try and piece together what happened the night before, ultimately arriving at Victor's place, 
who tells him it was all mostly theater, but also to cut it out with the questions already. And by this point, Bill is so traumatized by all this creepy sexuality that he breaks down in tears with Alice and tells her everything. The next day, Alice is like, well, now that we've gotten that out of our system, we can move on and stay married. But first, we really got to fuck. 13 seconds over. What a great job. Well done. I didn't stumble over my words, so that helped a lot. (laughs) I'm not a person who has very good vocal training. I don't do any of those. Uh, Midwest mush mouth. It's triple tri- trip of the tongue and past the lips or whatever. All those like little uh, um, vocal mouth exercises. You um, also kind of, help. you know, reduced all of his like, yeah, dark soul of the night. I knew I couldn't go into episodes, which it's like I knew I couldn't go into every single one of like the costume shop and Alan Cumming and, and you know, right. because like that way ends in a 12 minute plot description um so you sort of have to sort of like hand wave your way through that but like we'll definitely get into all of that stuff in our discussion because all of those things the episodic nature of this movie is maybe my favorite thing about it um and i like all these little vignettes i do find myself still um and maybe this is by design i guess like mostly dissatisfied by all of the fidelio stuff and i find it to be okay let's have this conversation now um, I find this movie to be heterosexual to its detriment. I was going to say this is, I mean, like, I don't think it's to its detriment. I, I think this is a deeply heterosexual movie. It's the most heterosexual movie. It's the most heterosexual movie. That is absolutely correct. A little I bit mean, of gay perspective would have gone a long way for the characters in this movie, but also for the people who wrote and directed this movie. I mean, like, I think, I think a little bit a like generational perspective could go a long way because I watched this movie and I'm like, if it wasn't so well made, if the performances weren't so strong, if the craft of it wasn't so entrancing, I know I sound like a pull quote whore right here. (laughs) But if it wasn't for that and like this wasn't like so precise. Yeah. I would almost think it's passe. This movie is 30 years after Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Yes. Which, like, uh, don't let me go off off on a tangent about that movie. You know I love that movie. Yeah. Um, That it's just like, we're still here. We're still here. Heterosexual people have not evolved. And to Kubrick's defense, I guess. I would actually say heterosexual men. Yes. Um, I do think that this movie has has an interesting relationship to pornography. And like the proliferation of pornography, is well, maybe sex work the in general, sex work in general, place. I would say, sure, 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 sure. But in relation to like, where were we at, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and where are we at with Eyes yeah. Wide Shut? You know, in terms of yeah. heterosexual, you know, nuclear unit sexuality, and specifically male sexuality. Yeah, because maybe it does say that for heterosexual women, things have evolved because you know nicole kidman's character she is able to say i had this just like total fugue state of sexual fantasy where i couldn't get this guy off my mind and of course nothing happened but like she was so horny for this guy she saw in passing and couldn't forget about it and she's able to talk about it but for him it's just like you look at the presentations of sexuality in this movie and it's so I would argue unerotic and like yeah. if there's eroticism to this movie it's like scary eroticism like 
Yeah. I can't imagine being very turned on by this movie. And like even the parts of the movie that I do think are parts where we are supposed to feel like there is an erotic charge, them making out in front of the mirror, or when he goes and sees Vanessa Shaw's roommate the next day and they mm-hmm. come very close to making out before she's like sit down, I need to tell you about Vanessa Shaw's diagnosis. Um but I think that's at least meant to uh, meant to depict an erotic charge in that. And whether it's Tom Cruise's complete lack of ability to sell that kind of uh, vibe on a screen, or whether like too much has happened in the movie by that point that just like we our our boners have gone bye bye forever. Um, it it doesn't. It just. It's hard, no pun intended, to um to really get into that kind of a vibe with the movie mm-hmm. by that point. You know what I mean? Which is why I think Kidman's whole monologue about how she got horny for this guy while being very sexy is also so dismantling for the movie because it feels like actual horniness. And like I also say that, you know, the the punchline of the movie, which is so funny, but also like yeah. the idea of like, we're going to go fuck later is way hotter than any of this very sterile, overt sexuality, it which rem- is why I, I bring up like the pornography angle to this movie, because like the Fidelio sequence even the censored or uncensored, which like I don't really think the censored version is all that available now. Um, I watched it last night. It's on Apple Apple uh, movies. That's the Apple version, yeah. the one where they just have people standing in front yes. of everyone fucking. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I was see, not happy have, about I, it. Oh, okay. Not that's that I like needed to see like I can watch porn. Apple. Like, no, yeah. but it's for, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this. Yeah, it's an, it's annoying to me that that's the version that's available when Why you rent is that it online. On Apple, that's wild. Um, I don't know. I wonder if they just have a scan of the VHS or something, because I think the VHS was the censored version, if I remember correctly. But the thing about the Fidelio sequence is, like, it's not sexy. It's just, like, here's a naked lady. Mm -hmm. And is that supposed to be enough for this character? I mean, yeah. My thing, though, about the... The heterosexuality of it all. I can't even say it. I'm so opposed to it, I can't even say it, Chris. Um, No, but like, it's part of it is that the whole movie is predicated on the idea that this heterosexual man, this incredibly attractive, like canonically attractive, they talk about it so much in the movie, about he's like this incredibly handsome doctor, is so completely thrown not by the idea that his wife had an affair or a one night stand or anything, but that but his that wife fantasized. fantasized one time about a man. And it's not even, it's funny because she mentions that she fantasized about having sex with him and leaving her family. But you can tell the thing that bothers him is that she fantasized about having sex with him because the nightmarish, weird, blue tinted visions that he has not, are not of her leaving him but are of her being actually, like, pleasured by this man. So, like, that's the part that throws him. The idea of his wife having a fantasy about another man so throws him that, like, for two solid days, he loses his goddamn mind and nearly gets himself gets killed horny brain. by a secret society of either 
like masters of the universe who will kill to protect their secrets or really overinvested theater people who are just like putting on a little panto of of you know sexuality or whatever either one he of the saw two. sleep no more when it was still in workshop it was that one guy has a sleep no more sleep no more mask um uh, yeah, he saw the a very early preview yep. of Sleep No More. That was his herring of evidence. He anyway. loved Sleep No More, but when it was at the public. Right. But it's also the fact that, like, so that's an incredibly heterosexual perspective, but it's also, like, pervasive throughout this movie, this idea of sex as a taboo and of sex as a thing that is inherently sort of especially like anonymous sex is something that is um a a distraction from emotion or a uh a symptom of a sort of like psychological deficiency or like there's just an incredibly limited and straight view of like a muse he's chasing like of, it's a wisp in the air you that know? you that that the idea of Sex, even like the most like basic sex for pleasure in this movie is supposed to be about power displays or about, you know what I mean? That just like it's, it's the, the idea that only at the very end does she introduce this idea. Maybe this is what is intentional then. Only by the end does she introduce this idea of sex for pleasure. And even that is, is, is more just like, and now we need to have sex to prove that we're both beyond you know, this entire ordeal that we've sort of put each other through. And it's so, it's so, wait, it's just so, it's not strange to me because obviously like this is not a surprise that. Are you telling me this movie is normal? Are you telling me that this movie is not strange? I no, (laughs) but, but but it's, but it's not strange that this would be the straight perspective on this kind of thing, especially even in like the nineties, but like the Clinton era was like, the way we as sort of like mainstream society viewed sex was a very um fraught time but kubrick who you have this expectation of who is a if not more forward thinker but is at least like you know he's he's you know an artist this is the last movie he's ever made so like he's an artist who's you know been around uh a while and you would it's a surprisingly He'd wanted to make this movie a long time. It's a surprisingly limited take on sex, is what I will say. I I would strongly argue that the movie agrees with you, and that this whole sure, possibly, odyssey yeah. that he goes on is absolutely ridiculous and futile, and is emblematic of what is useless about heterosexual male sexuality. Uh I would argue that the movie is kind of about that, um, intentionally so. Uh, you know, I mean, every every kind of episode of this movie, if we're calling them that, is all about dismantling some different type of nuance in this man's sexual hangups mm. um, or sexual obsession. That I, I mean, it's also a movie that kind of ends on a joke. Um, right. So I, I don't really see it as on his side or taking him it's all not. that seriously. It's definitely not. the movie not. thinks it's talking about something serious. But I still feel like the lessons, if it's trying to impart any lessons, um, there is still a kind of accepted view of 
of, you know, this world of anonymous sex. Like he wanders into a sex party and it's so unerotic and yada, yada, yada. But like it, it never seems to consider. I don't know. I'm not going to turn this whole thing into like could be. justice for sex parties, Stanley Kubrick, like, <laughs> st- you know, pasting that on his gravestone or something like that. But yeah, like there's there's there are blinkers to uh, this movie because this movie is so focused on a straight view of sexuality. I think any time that it tries to make a claim towards a more evolved view of sexuality, it doesn't maybe know just how blinkered it remains. Where I think this movie is tr- is trying it no this movie knows that it knows more than Cruz. This movie knows that it's making fun of him and that it is um you know that he ultimately is the person who needs to be taught a thing or two and needs to like learn a thing or two or whatever, right? And I think it maybe bothers me a little bit that Kubrick or the writer or sort of like the film as a sort of like, you know, external construct thinks that it's more evolved that it, they like by placing itself as in opposition you, to the masculine mind. Yeah, that like you're not you're not quite you as outside of this as else. you think you are a little bit. Do you know what I mean? That like Yeah, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. And I I I hear you and I see you. You don't just want it to unpack his brain. You want an alternative presented. I want a little bit of an acknowledgement of the fact that even, like, for as much as he steps outside of the realm of normal society by going to this, you know, scary sex mansion or whatever, that even beyond that, there exists a world that is, like, even less um, sort of bottled up about sexuality, that that, that a sex party doesn't have to be like a druid ritual sacrifice. Do you know what I mean? That or like visiting a sex worker or, or visiting a sex you know, worker doesn't have to be this like of... fraught life changing, whatever, or like, like any number of these things, you know what I mean? Well, um, and like, uh, I think he's talking about a male sexuality that yeah. thinks that all of that is some type of, you yeah. know, you know, trophy basically. But like I hear you in saying that it doesn't offer anything else, and I don't know. And the if only the queer perspective MC... in this movie is like love struck Ellen Cumming, who is like very like he's <laughs> like he's so he's such a weird like innocent in the way that he flirts with with Cruz that I almost feel like give that man like a little bit of adult sexuality and just have him like flirt with him like a grown up, and like maybe that solves a little bit of my problem. It feels like the first actual flirtation in the movie. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. The way Vanessa Shaw approaches of... him is so funny to me, where she's just like <laughs> in her like muckluck and Pan Am uniform. Right. It does like... look like she's just stepped off of the runway somewhere, modeling like the new line for like ball winner Pan like, Am collection. Uni- yeah, like United Airlines uh, winter chic or like Alaska Airlines. That's their it's new stewardess uniform or something. Uh, yeah fashion week right but it's just like i guess that's like and i not nothing that happens in this movie feels like uh, is out of the real world anyway so maybe i'm bringing a little bit too much into but just like and like the idea that like people are just like walking off of the street and like propositioning him for sex is well it's it's a dream it's a i know it's a dream it's all a dream how much of this is real how much of this is perception how much of this is blah 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 yeah 
But even like the the Vanessa Shaw costuming, it's like it's his idea of what a sex worker looks like. She looks like a flight attendant for the Jetsons in yeah. Soviet Russia. Yeah. Like that's what a sex It does make me laugh, speaking of Todd Field and Kate Blanchett, um, that people got so mad at even the slightest suggestion that Tar might have a dream life dream logic dream logic that aspect was, to it that was just and yet people are very very accepting of this read on eyes wide shut that like the whole thing could be a dream well i i don't know people there were there was a dumb contingent towards tar where it's just like you don't realize that this is a the movie is intentionally from a very limited perspective what are you talking like that's what the movie is like I thought it was an interesting little line of discussion. I don't mean to say that that's the definitive aspect, but like I don't understand the like militant resistance to even talking about it along right. those lines. No, like I, people I, I, were I, I, really, really like upset that one person was like, maybe Tar is a dream at the end. We don't know. And like people were like, no, shut up. And I'm like, okay. Like, well, I, I also think this like kind, there were a lot of critics, uh, Ebert included, who say that the ending of the movie felt kind of regressive and easy and like they're just standing in the middle of fao schwartz talking about dreams and dreams and dreams and dreams and we're yeah. going to be together and blah blah blah, blah. while their I child gets abducted that... by the sticky bandits or whatever exactly and... that kid is gone that yeah. child focus on your kid <laughs> like none of these they're horrible parents benjamin movie. button looking ass well, daughter like she looks like Elle fanning and benjamin button um yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. that kid that kid has swallowed a connects there's a giant <laughs> display. There is a Lego lodged in her throat, and nobody is saving her. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Can I also She's swan diving off the balcony into a display of seven hundred teddy bears? Um, I love the yeah, magic. I don't think that the way this movie ends, uh, I un- the way that it does end, I think uh, with uh, you know, uh, exacerbates or uh, not. What am I trying to say? I think I think the ending of this movie makes is not going to dissuade yeah. you from having the perspective you have on the movie. I like the ending. I like the way it ends. I actually like. I I'm I'm happy with that. I before we get off of this last two thing, um, because there are I I say that Alan Cumming is the only bit of queerness in the movie. There are three bits of queerness in the movie: the people dancing at the sex party, the two men dancing at the sex party. And also two women dancing at the sex party. Um, were like who feel very tokenized to me, but whatever. Get get your get your thing. Um, Alan Cumming. Well, that's and then how also, gay people have sex. We just dance. The depiction of the homophobes in this movie is so aggro and out of control that well, I'm it's just Christmas like, time, Joe. It's during SantaCon. <laughs> that's fair. They were all going to like the costume shop to pick up their Santa costumes. They were going to the rainbow right. costume shop. Um uh, but it's and like homophobia exists to this day. I too have been called a faggot out on the street. Like it happens. But like this particular vision of this, where they're just like, you know, uh, hip check this guy into a car and then spend a full two minutes out of their only life that God is going to give them, like finding eight billion ways to just be like exit and no entrance, man. Like friend of Dorothy. La, 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 I got la. dumps bigger than you. First yeah. of all, whichever one of them calls him a friend of Dorothy, that man is homosexual. I'm a straight saying. man does not know what that means. I'm saying. 
Uh, they find like eight means. billion different ways to just be like, all right, Mary, and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, good lord, work queen. Yeah, essentially, they're Play, like halfway. Honey. They're halfway to being the library challenge in Drag Race, <laughs> where it's just like those cliffhangers, please, like that kind of thing. Um, that's very. But again, it just sort of like adds to the picture of like it really is the most heterosexual movie I have ever seen in my entire life. Truly. Fidelio, uh, let me in. I want to talk about this year's, uh, this week's uh, update for the Vulture Movie Fantasy League. Do I have the right password? <laughs> You're supposed to be like December. You are in <laughs> grave danger. Okay. Do we actually think that's the case? Uh, I think May December is in danger of not getting major nominations until it gets them. It's, I, I fooled me once, <laughs> fooled me a million times uh, on having my hopes for uh, a, a Todd Haynes film getting. You are you. I've never seen you this braced for disaster as you are. You're bracing for Barbie snobbery to kick in. Bracing for you're Barbie bracing, snobbery. Bracing for Todd Haynes. Like you, know. you are. You're bracing for all of it. You're. You, this sink is braced. This year, and and uh, the sink is your uh, your worries about the Oscars. Um, so the big update for the Vulture League this week is the Oscar shortlists were released in several categories, including documentary feature, international feature, makeup and hairstyling, original score, original song, um, all the short films, uh, which doesn't don't apply to um this. Although I will say. If we had included like the Almodovar uh, in uh, as a short film in our fantasy league, it would have a bunch of points by now. Um, I, uh, sound, um, sound, and visual effects. I, would be I, 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 whenever that short comes up in ta- in conversation, I just like nobody wants I, to talk about I, that they I didn't Homer like it. Simpson back into nobody wants to talk about that they didn't like it. Nobody, the worst I've thing not he's t- ever made. It I've looks- not talked to a single person who's liked it. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess. Yeah, it's it's so weird to me that it's this short that advances, and it wasn't the Tilda Swinton one, which is so much better. Well, yeah, but there you go. Which of the of the Wes Andersons made it into live action short? The the longest one, the wonderful story of Henry Henry Sugar. Sugar. Yeah. Okay. I hope he gets it. I hope he gets nominated for that. It's not my favorite of the four, and it I still haven't seen any of them. But that'll so be so a... weird that his Oscar is a short Oscar. Did he win for screenplay for Grand Budapest? He did not, right? Or maybe he did. No, I don't think he's ever screenplay. won for screenplay. I don't think so. It would have been Boyhood no. otherwise. So I think he did win that. No, uh, in in 2014, it was Birdman won original. Oh. And what would have won adapted? Oh, Imitation Game. Ooh. Imitation Game and Birdman were the screenplay winners that year. Right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, okay. It'll be so, weird if his Oscar is for a short film. It will be, but honestly, he's a quirky filmmaker. Give him a quirky Oscar. I'm fine with that. Um, it's going to have Netflix money behind it, too. So Yeah, yeah. So if you're talking about the big winners, points-wise, from the shortlist, a lot of them were the ones you would imagine. Barbie got five, three of them in um, uh, original, original song. song. Everything was worth five points, so, if, so 25 points to Barbie for that. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon got four. A bunch of movies got three. Zone of Interest got three. 
Napoleon, um, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Color Purple, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, all got three. Um, I do wonder so- if Napoleon is the widows of this year's shortlist where it shows up on a bunch of shortlists and the convinces nope. people it will get an Oscar yeah. nomination somewhere. I think it's more likely that Napoleon will versus Widows, but I could see Napoleon getting none of those nominations. I think Napoleon is getting one Oscar nomination, whether that comes from uh, sound or what were the three it showed up in? On Visual the effects. List if I had to put my money down saying Napoleon will get one of those nominations, I would say visual effects. Because visual effects is so weak. So let's look at visual effects now that you mentioned that. Okay, so the shortlist is The Creator, Godzilla Minus One, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Napoleon, Poor Things, Rebel Moon, Society of the Snow, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So just in terms of like, which of these movies have the sheen of success to them? I think that helps a lot. So in those ones, you're looking at uh, Poor Things, Society of the Snow. We'll talk about Society of the Snow in a second. Across the Spider-Verse. Um, honestly, Guardians 3, because it's like the one good Marvel piece of news all year. Guardians was that 3, movie. which surprisingly did not make the makeup shortlist after the first two Guardians were fully nominated for makeup. Yeah. Makeup was in- makeup was odd this year because they also didn't shortlist Barbie. Um, and like the whole character drew on her fucking face. Like that's a whole like well, makeup, makeup as and character styling too. Like uh, all yeah. of those uh, yeah. Barbies were in wigs. You know? Yeah. Um. So and I think Godzilla minus one is has the air of success. So cool. Right now I hope it happened because you know that's it, we can keep our fingers crossed because that would be a really cool nomination. I had a lot of fun at that movie. I think it would deserve it. It would really deserve it and maybe deserve to win in this category. I haven't seen The Creator yet. Yeah. That's the one when we did our catch-up. Everyone I'm was like, the, creator. the creator's going to win. The creator's going to win, and we didn't even mention The Creator. Well, um, because The Creator was such a bomb at the box office. But I have heard, like Allison the movie The Creator. Um, Allison Wilmore really liked it, and I, I've wanted to see it just on that recommendation alone. I'm um, going to catch up to it. It is on Hulu now. Um, I will say, uh, speaking on Godzilla Minus One... Um, and Society of the Snow. In my defense, I thought Society of the Snow was going to go to next year, and Godzilla Minus One was just not on my radar. So no, neither one of those two movies were draftable in the Fantasy League, so those end up getting nominations. Um, blame me. At least, um, <laughs> at least uh, All Quiet on the Western Front was in the Fantasy League last year, even though it was like only priced for like a couple of dollars because I did not see it coming. I will say, here and now, on the record, on this yes. podcast. Yes. If Rebel Moon and Indiana Jones are not nominated for visual effects... I don't think they will be. I am willing to be a completist again this year, because Free Guy broke me. I was like, not doing it. I can't do it. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny... Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is not the kind of movie to, to break a vow on. Like, it's fine. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, honest to God. Like, I'm not I watching would not... Rebel Moon, period. Um, I might just out of, like, pure curiosity. But, like, I am also, like, I tend to be sci-fi curious in that way, where it's just, like, sure. a, like a sci-fi, like, wannabe Star Wars sort of space epic. I'm at least curious to see it. So, right, right. I imagine, if I were to guess visual effects nominees in, uh, from this I five this right now. I think this is kind of hard. I would guess... 
Poor Things, Godzilla, Guardians 3, The Creator, and I would I want to see Society of the Snow so I know what kind of visual effects are in there. Mm-hmm. But um maybe Spider-Man? Either Spider-Man or Society of the Snow for fifth is what I would say. The other Spider-Verse movie was shortlisted in this category and didn't get nominated. And didn't, so okay, I'm that makes not, me... Yeah, I'm yeah, not so yeah. bullish on that happening, though. Yeah. I mean, Kubo and the Two Strings was, you know... It yeah. did use a lot of computer animation on top of stop motion, which is how right. I think it got in there. But, like, that is an interesting yeah. precedent. I... The thing about visual effects is they used to do those presentations where it's like, all of the shortlisted uh, would like showcase their wares would do like a showcase. And it was apparently like semi public that like people could just go to it, but like Mm -hmm. you had to know it was happening and it wasn't super advertised or anything. Interesting. And you know, when you have these odd nominations that show up, like what was it? Deepwater horizon or something that for the average person is like, seems like a head scratcher. You go and you look at the reporting of those presentations, and it's like, this team gave a really incredible presentation. They are totally a sleeper for a nomination, and then they have mm-hmm. it. Those mm-hmm. aren't public anymore, and I think yeah. the way they do the presentation has somewhat changed, probably because of the Zoom of it all. Sure. Um I I don't know if they're pu- if they're, you know, actual in-person presentations anymore, but I know that you like you, the average person can't just go to them anymore. Yeah. But that, I think, w- would be especially useful this year because I yes. do think this is a really hard category. It's a really hard category to peg. It's totally true. I would um, say the creator, Napoleon. I haven't seen Poor Things yet, but if you have confidence on it, I'll go with that. And I would say Society I'm just of saying Snow it's, and- it's the only one of these movies that's going to be a Best Picture nominee. So I feel like that momentum will carry it. Even though it's it's not like big action visual effects, but like the movie is the 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 surreality of that movie i think will have enough opportunities it's not like a ton of like you know what you would normally think of as like nominatable vfx and this kind of stuff but yeah. my fifth slot would go to indiana jones um it's but... possible indiana jones movies tend to get nominated like but they were all previously to this they were all spielberg movies so um i want to talk about society of the snow um I did think it was going to go to 2024 for some reason because it was such a late like breaker for for mm. Netflix. It was it the got- Venice closer too, so it's not it, that made it seem like it was not. Yeah, real. like yes, yes. Uh, it gets shortlisted four times, and already the momentum for this I think had been building up a little bit in terms of like, oh, this is going to maybe be a thing. It was it was Spain's selection for international feature. It did make the shortlist for international feature. I do feel like it's got some momentum there. International Feature is interesting because the one that's been winning all the critics' prizes is Anatomy of a Fall, and that is not available uh, uh, on this list. So submitted The Taste of Things, which I think still has a really great chance at winning. Taste of Things is France's. So, like, the ones that jump out on this list to me, and you, you've seen all of these movies. So yes, you are I've seen great... all 15 of the shortlisted films. Which I, is, I'm I have so a jealous piece of that you. is currently not out, but will be coming out with The Daily Beast. Yes. Uh, when that piece comes out, uh, Gary's uh, Run, Don't Walk, um, it's, uh, I'm very excited for that to come out. But anyway, so you're a good uh, person to 
uh, talk to my sense of what is most likely here. Uh, zone of interest, taste of things, fallen leaves. I feel like those three are like pretty solid. And then some sort of mishmash of Society of the Snow, Perfect Days, uh, Io Capitano from Italy, um, maybe Four Daughters doing the like documentary and international double feature thing. That's not the movie it, that I would have predicted to. That and the uh, Ukraine doc, 20 Days in Mariupol, both of them are yeah. shortlisted there. I would have expected The Mother of All Lies. Uh, to show up in both uh, from yes. Morocco. Maybe that's just because I thought it was a much better movie than those movies. That one is shortlisted in international, but not in documentary. No, it's shortlisted uh, in documentary, not international. I'm looking at it as shortlisted in international. Oh, okay. Wait, maybe I just, maybe I was wrong. Uh, Yes, correct. It's international, not documentary. Never mind. Yeah. Um, so I know you are a big cheerleader for Mexico's entry, which is Totem. Best do you think that has a good, do you think it's going to be nominated? Um, if they, and what is it, it about? Uh, it's, a, it's a family drama told through, you could kind of say multiple perspectives. The movie I've kind of been comparing it to is Rachel getting married. Um, oh, well, uh, it's a family drama where centered somewhat around, uh, one of the young girls in the family, her father is uh, terminally ill, and they are throwing a basically life celebration for him. Sure. Um, it, the best of this lineup, my favorite in this entire lineup. You have also been telling me for a year that I need to watch Iceland's Godland uh, yeah. because that's going to be nominated. As soon as I saw Iceland submitted that, I saw that back in Toronto in 2022. I remember. Um, yeah. That was the movie of the 2022 can that I kept seeing people be like, why wasn't this in main competition? Why wasn't this in main competition? Mm-hmm. Um, I, ever since I saw that they submitted it, I was like, at the bare minimum, it's making the short list. And I think it's a sleeper to get nominated. Okay. Um, so if just, you had to pick five as a guess right okay. now. Um, I would say uh the taste of things, mm-hmm. Teacher's Lounge, Godland, and how many do I have left? Two. Two more. Perfect days and society of the snow. <laughs> so I am somewhat predicting a zone of interest. A zone of interest snub. That's no. interesting. Zone, Zone of, of Interest is- getting a Best Picture nomination but not International Feature would be funny. Zone I don't of think out- showing up in score and sound here I think shows a certain amount of strength. But yeah. I, it just feels like that movie is going to disappoint in some way. I don't think that's out of the question. Like the the idea of it getting a Best Picture nomination but not International Feature feels like feels plausible in a way that like yeah. more plausible. I also want to note that Bhutan is shortlisted again after they had uh, a Bang yak in the classroom as Lunana yak in the classroom. So don't underestimate the monk and the gun in that, that regard. That is a movie that I do think has the potential because it does really kind of appeal to Academy taste as the, the does the Armenian movie Amerikatsi. It is uh-huh. so close to life is beautiful that I was like, we've <laughs> seen this movie. Well, okay, so maybe that transitions into my uh, last question before we move on to other categories. Um, 
what's the one movie from this list of international features that if it does get nominated, you're going to be like, God damn it. What's the booger? I don't think Fallen Leaves is a booger. I think it's fine, but the outright love for it really does escape me. I think everybody that's voting on this category will see it because it's 80 minutes long. Maybe that makes people feel like it's a little slighter. I mean, Americazzi is the absolute worst of them. There's a performance in Monk and the Gun that I do think is one of the worst performances by by a non-actor. Is it by a yak? Is it by no? It's by uh, a white guy who wants to buy, uh, you know, war guns. Uh, Oh, I see. Okay, uh, uh, yeah. So those two and the Promised Land are my least favorite of the category. Okay. Um, Society of the Snow also shortlisted in makeup and hairstyling, original score, and uh, we said visual effects already. So let's talk about makeup and hairstyling. We've got. Bo is afraid. Ferrari. Golda. Golda is sitting right there waiting Golda's to get a nomination get, it's gonna that is going to make me have to see one more movie I haven't seen. I'm going to have to go and see Golda. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon. Last Voyage of the Demeter. Which I haven't seen Last Voyage of the Demeter yet, but I do kind of want to. So uh, I'm Dracula Boten film. Uh, Maestro. Napoleon. Oppenheimer. Poor Things. And then, as I said, Society of the Snow. Um, I do think that Gold is going to get nominated. It's Golda, very um, Maestro, Punem Forward Cinema. I feel Society like Society of the Snow. What's that? It's going to be Golda, Maestro, um, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, and Society of the Snow. That is a confident uh, statement right there. I have no reason to doubt you. But um, if one of them falls out, it's probably Ferrari. What are we? Is it? Oh, it's old age. It's old age makeup on exactly. Oppenheimer. I'm like, exactly. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, yeah. Bo is afraid. Frankly, this is a movie I don't like, but would deserve a nomination here, but it won't happen. It absolutely does. I mean, it is also old age makeup, but yeah, it's a lot of, lot of, lot of types of makeup on a lot of types of things, including like wound makeup. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, what else did we say? Original score for uh, another possibility for Society of the Snow. They didn't list, once again, they don't list the composers. So, um, right. Uh, they are not sitting here in front of me, but um, the color purple showing up is fascinating that it was eligible, considering it's an existing song score from a Broadway musical. So there must be enough original score there made just for the movie. You talk about your bracing for Barbie snobbery and Todd Haynes' disappointment. I am embra- I am bracing for the bottom to fall out of this color purple thing because every. It's not like I haven't heard any good things about it, but like there's so much bad buzz from people I know who have seen it already. And I know like a lot of people who have seen it. I'm one of those psychos who looks at like how things have sold locally. Yeah. I mean, Color Purple is already selling out shows on Christmas Day. Like, but I just mean like qualitatively. So do you feel like if it makes enough money that it's going to that that success will help buoy it past maybe middling rating. Not showing up for AFI, not getting a Best Musical right. nomination at the Globes. Right. I mean, I kind What's of What's going on with this movie? Do. I mean, I guess the, the history is not really for the late-breaking movie that does show up in an Oscar Best Picture 10 to be like a box office success. Yeah. You know, it's more something 
international, you know, that ran a smart campaign, usually by Sony's Sony Classics. Right, right. That's why I think the Teacher's Lounge is getting nominated, because, like, all of the Sony Classics initiative and effort is going to be behind getting that movie nominated. Yeah, so I think uh, they also have Shada, which is the Australian entry, and I think is a much better movie than the Teacher's Lounge. Uh, yeah. Sadly, that was not shortlisted. So the ones we've seen show up in a lot of these precursors for score, uh, Robbie Robertson for Killers of the Flower Moon, um, uh, uh, Mika Levi for Zone of Interest, the Zone of Interest, um, uh, Oppenheimer, of course, is very sort of score forward in that way. Um, I don't know if. I mean, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is John Williams. We've all gone broke underestimating John Williams before, so like, sure. I would I would advise against it. Um, uh, something like The Holdovers feels like it could show up here, though. Or um, American Fiction and The Holdovers showing up there. It's like that's I think definitely a sign that there's it, those will show up in Best Picture. Oh, definitely. I think Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse has shown up in a lot of precursors for score. I think that's a definite that possibility. That campaign is really galvanized behind the music in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, really hoping that Boy and the Heron gets nominated here. I'm not holding out hope, but... Boy and the Heron... I would love to see it. I think it's doing well. I think... I I I see good things for it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think I see positives. I'm just going to pour a couple out here for... Um, the scores for Asteroid City and The Killer, both mm-hmm. of which and Monster I really liked, and Monster, which, Monster, Monster was Ryuichi Sakamoto's uh, final score before passing away, um, and it's the best thing about the movie. Yeah. Um. All right, we're already going think long. It would be shortlisted, but should have been. We're already going long, and we haven't hit the most important category, which is original song. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Diane by Warren's the rules, getting nominated again. Diane Warren is the songwriter for the song from Flamin' Hot, the story of the invention of Flaming Hot Cheetos, um, for a song called The Fire Inside. I cannot wait to listen to this song. Um, but other notes from this, there are two uh, shortlisted movies from the movie Flora and Son, which is available on Apple TV+. Plus. That's the new John Carney movie starring, uh, is it Eve Hewson, who's Bono's daughter? Uh, I believe so, and Joseph, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. Uh, John Carney movies get nominated in this category, unless you're the best <laughs> one of them, which is the best song, at least I think. Uh, which is uh from Sing Street did not yeah. get it. Um, three from Barbie, the three that we have mentioned: Dance the Night, I'm Just Ken, and What Was I Made For. Two from The Color Purple, which once again, uh, you know. Who knows what's going to happen? Who where where that's going to shake out? One for American Symphony. We should say the Netflix documentary American mm-hmm. Symphony, the John Batiste uh, documentary, got shortlisted a bunch of times. Once in score, once in song. Here, I think that's and once in documentary feature. It's going to win documentary. A, yeah, I think that's people have been saying that. I don't care for the movie, but it's going to win. Uh, Asteroid City does get shortlisted here, although I wouldn't expect it to Thank get God. a nomination for rightful winner. Um. What else? Hunger Games is on here. Killers of the Flower Moon um, has a song uh, shortlisted here mm-hmm. that I would keep an eye on, I would say. I think every once in a while you get that, like, you know, uh, not poppy, like, it's not a song that would probably exist on its own. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A song that is, like, very, very dependent on 
the film and yet would get nominated. Lenny also, Kravitz is going to get nominated for Rustin I was just about too. to say, yeah. I'm keeping a wary eye on Lenny Kravitz's song from Rustin. So nothing to the craziest one on there is The Fire Inside from Flaming Hot. That's the one movie that jumps out to you. And like the the song shortlist used to be chock a block with like weirdo documentaries you've never heard mm-hmm. from some sort of Jay Ralph song from it a, helps from that there's something. multiple movies taking up multiple slots. It does, but this is the most like mainstreamy original song uh, shortlist in a while. That really is only Diane Warren that is holding it up for a movie that you're like really. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. The craziest version of this lineup. Is like no flaming hot, flaming hot, two Flora and Sons, a you know, a Hunger Games, and uh, and like one Barbie, past lives. you know what I mean? Like that kind yeah. of thing, yeah, past lives, yeah, exactly. I would, yeah, rule no out Barbie. the chance that there is just one Barbie song nominated. But I wouldn't either, yeah. We know that only two can be, yeah, but yes, yeah, leave. you won't get all three, but you'll get either one or two. I would say I'd be shocked if it was none, but um. Stranger things have happened. Okay. Back um, to the orgy. <laughs> okay. Yes, we've talked about this long enough. Enjoy your holiday break. We'll be back with more about the uh, the Vulture Fantasy League in the new year. Back Congrats to your orgy. Congrats to Theresa May December for leading the Gary's League still. Yes. I yes. want to spotlight a uh, team named Pigeon Doctor. Thank you for supporting, showing up. Oh, Pigeon so Doctor. Did... Yeah. Pigeon Doctor, you did not draft showing up. But thank you for at least uh, stumping for it. I love that. All right. Uh, uh, until later. Back to your back to your orgy. Bye. All right. We should talk about other aspects of this movie, though, because like there are so many of them. Uh, what is your what is your take on the Fidelio party? Uns- you know what I mean? Like uncensored, like. And and the sort of space it occupies within the greater construct of the movie that it really is a much more limited part of the movie than than pe- uh, most people were expecting. It really every time I watch it, I'm like, this really kind of is a freak show. I think more of the ritual part of the sequence than the actual sex. The ritual the, like, part of the sequence is so. It exists, but it's not what I think about when I think about that sequence, you know? And yet, like, if I'm going to this party, right, if I'm, if this is my, like, little getaway where I get to go to this, like, fancy masked orgy, why do I want to be in the room where they have the big circle of, like, ceremony? Like, that to me, I'm just, like, tapping my watch being like, y'all, like, let's get a move know. on. I think behind the crowd, what we don't see in the audience is that's where the catering table is. That's where the snacks are. <laughs> that's behind the snack there. Room. There's the bar. That's right. where you get your cocktail. Right. Right. Um, there is a Overlook Hotel New Year's Eve man in a bear costume going down on a tuxedoed reveler aspect to that whole party too that i feel like is a little bit of a kubrick through line that i appreciate we're like oh right like kubrick just like when when stanley kubrick does decide to delve into the realm of the sexual i mean that whole christmas party at the beginning of the movie looks like it's in the overlook ballroom yes like yes yeah it does the big winding staircase that he has to go up and and there's also this movie is so full of people 
in fancy tuxedos walking up to usually Tom Cruise and being like, sir, you're needed in the next room. Like, <laughs> sir, the presence of your, your, your presence is requested over here. And it all sounds very like vaguely sinister. And, and all of that is sort of like carried off very well. Um, I think this movie, this movie's relationship with sort of the naked female form is also interesting to me where it's, there's a little bit of like, huh? Huh? How about that? Look at all of that. And it's just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, like it's a naked body. You've all gotten, you've all got stashes of playboy. In I your would argue room that Nicole Kidman's body is more sexualized. One million percent. The like, not dehumanized, but like the non-human characters that are having sex on screen in this movie. Yes. Like that doesn't feel like it's. You yeah. Know, the people, orgy is not sexy. One at all. But it, and it, it doesn't need to it's be. It's a difference between it's not, a not criticism. being sexy and not being sexualized. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. It does feel more like The Shining than it feels like watching yeah. people fuck, you know? Like, right. Whereas, like, the shots of Kidman's nudity feel much more erotic. You Intimate. mentioned at the top of Intimate. your 60-second plot the cowardice of her nudity opposite tom cruise not having it not to like boil it down to like base stuff or whatever but like well and it's very funny because like that shot in particular because it's this slow zoom in Mm -hmm. and like cruise comes into the shot at the exact moment where we have no idea if he's wearing underwear or not right Um, plausible deniability there i do think that there is not to you know be this person but i do think that there is an impact to the journey that this character goes on and we never see him naked feels very honest. Sure. Well, well, no, like in terms of like the way that it relates to the story. Yes. He's afraid. He's, he's, is he afraid of sexuality or is he so incredibly caught up in his own sort of male, illusion uh, this illusion of male control and male power that i mean i guess i'm answering my own question yes like her telling him <laughs> this thing about the naval officer has made him completely impotent right like that's like it, impotence as a as a metaphor or things being a metaphor for impotence in movies is like as old as movies itself like m- male directors have always been making movies where like what is that supposed to symbolize and it's like probably impotence like you know call up right. dr freud um, Which doesn't help the feeling of this all being a little passe. But I also feel like, and it's the thing that I mentioned in my plot description, was like, yes, it's about impotence, but it's also like, it's a man who I think wants to want to have an affair more than he wants to have an affair. Like, he wants right. to be the kind of person who can revenge fuck his way out of what he's feeling. And he's ultimately not part of part of it is because he does seem like, you know, kind of a wife guy. You know what I mean? Kind of a, you know, but also I think he's just. He's it's funny that he takes up the position in their argument when she's high of. 
where she's like, oh, millions of years of evolution. Men have to stick it in everything that moves and women are only interested in security. And he's like, yeah, mostly yes, that's right. Like you're being like weird about it, but yes. And it's like, it's weird that he's willing to push the argument in that direction when it's like, you don't seem to be somebody who like falls underneath that rubric, right? He does not seem to be a kind of person who needs to stick it in everything that moves. He seems almost like a person who enjoys that other people want to fuck him. I think that's where he maybe right. like is being a too too much in denial in that argument. He's well, not being he's, honest in that argument and I think that's why. He's afraid to admit that. He's too afraid to say to his wife that he does enjoy that. Right. Right. It's he enjoys like at the he enjoys end, that attention. Yeah. When he breaks It's down the gayest the thing about this movie. The, <laughs> that he enjoys that he enjoys attention that uh, much yeah but when he breaks down and sobs to her and like i'll tell you everything and it's like well what are you gonna tell her that she doesn't already know the mask is on the bed <laughs> she knows Which, well but like, she doesn't of course that's a symbolic thing that like she knows everything that happened or didn't happen in this fantasy but, like, is it a confession of, like, I will tell you everything that's on my mind and say things like, yes, I do enjoy, or, like, yeah. well, and you're sort some of previous infidelity or something? You're but, left like, to wonder. to tell from well, your week before Christmas. The next thing we see is it's daylight. You know what I mean? Like, the sun is already up. And so, like, they've been talking about a lot of stuff, and she's in, you know, she's crying, and he's crying. So, like, clearly... A lot of shit came out in this conversation, and yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, as a sort of psychological probe into this marriage, I think it's successful. But like, that's why I like the vignette stuff too, where he's like, he keeps getting himself into these situations where he's just if like either repulsed or nonplussed by the idea of having sex with another person. There's that woman whose father has died who, like, throws herself at him. Uh, uh, Greg's wife, who isn't Dharma in this situation, but uh, uh, her husband is Greg from Dharma yeah. and Greg. <laughs> Jump scare Greg from Dharma and Greg. I know, I know. Um, but, like, um, so, like, and that, like, any, uh, that attention from her sort of, like, turns him off, and the Vanessa Shaw scene, obviously. The Lily Sobieski part is sort of fraught with the complication of this does feel like Kubrick being like, now on the subject of how I directed Lolita. And now I will like bring this whole thing where it's like at first it's comedic, and then when he revisits the costume shop the next day, it becomes really unsettling. And you wonder if for a second that that Bill is going to jump into sort of male savior mode there and be like, you know, um, no, I have to rescue this girl, which is like that impulse is also very, uh, very much part of this whole like male the sexual, male sexuals, the heterosexual male sexual psyche. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know. It's all very, I get what he's going for and. In certain aspects, it's satisfying. And in other aspects, I do get a little like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I got it. And I hate being the person who's like, 
I liked it on an intellectual level, but I just wasn't really feeling it. But like, I do kind of feel I mean, that way. Like, there is something to a certain where, extent. This is a like vibes wavelength movie that it's like you really have to get onto its wavelength, and it took a long time for I think widespread. I also think you gotta want it to get on the vibe of this movie. You gotta want it a little bit, and maybe on some level, I'm like, I could take really so. Um, and I'm you fine have to with wonder that. though, like for people to have come around on this movie. Have things really changed? Like, I was talking about, like, you know, the 30 years between this and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Right. Like, has anything changed? And then this movie makes you feel like nothing did. But, like, if people can like it and talk about the themes of this movie more and get this movie more, has some of that changed? Well, I think part of it is that change happens in in a circle that sort of moves forward, right? But it sort of spirals. So it's like, you know what I mean? We're like, it's it's a cycle, but every cycle sort of like nudges a little bit further forward. And so Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice was at a very sort of like liberated part of the cycle. And then like, you know, you get into the 70s and it starts to curdle and then the 80s sort of like swoops back. Conservative as hell. And then it's like, by the time you get to the Clinton stuff, the Clinton era... It becomes so like sexuality becomes such a fraught thing, and you are you know dealing with things like you know um uh, sexual harassment becomes an actual like thing of conversation, and yet at the same time, liberals were sort of pushing back at the idea of of certain ideas of sexual harassment because they wanted to defend Clinton and so like culturally, we were at if not like a complete ebb of that sort of progressive freedom of a Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, but we were at at least a very sort of um, uncom like discomfort position with sexual liberation, and then like and it would sort of and again I think we're recording this the weekend that the Senate staffer sex video came out, and I'm like how long it was going to take for this to come up. I, and it's like so, and it makes you sort of like, okay, where are we at at this moment of uh, sexual liberation, comfort with sexuality? Where this is a real eye opener to the fact that like certain things that have become quasi normalized in, a, say, I would say especially gay male culture in terms of like OnlyFans culture and like alt uh twitter feed culture and close friends you know instagrams and whatnot um to get me you want to get me talking for a full hour talk to me about the (laughs) the 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 veil the fake veil of privacy that people think they have on close friends is fascinating in the context of this whole thing like it's it's genuinely wild but i think it makes me it you do sort of like step back and you're just like where are we sort of like politically and culturally with our general comfort in, with sex, especially with like Gen Z coming up being like, you know, this more sex negative generation, and then Republicans sort of banging down the gates, waiting to like criminalize a whole bunch of things right. with like, so, so it's like, and yet, like at the same time, <laughs> certainly some people feel free enough to get railed in the Senate, you know. <laughs> A meeting room and throw that up on their Instagram story and um 
So it's a. Uh, it's as far as movies are concerned, yeah. Too, and I mean, you know, obviously, uh, Karina Longworth, uh, fabulously, brilliantly use this movie as kind of a linchpin as the end of sex in mainstream movies you know especially studio movies yeah and you know that certainly hasn't changed i mean like how often are do you hear well not anymore because like we're talking about other things with these movies but like the sexlessness of marvel movies i think uh, that that's true i i remember when when sort of that was the conclusion that karina came to at the end of that series and i while i definitely think that's true i also also think it's worth mentioning that like everything in mainstream movies has narrowed because the product that is being put out as mainstream has narrowed but at the same time independent movies are not as invisible as what they used to be they are not as hard to come by as what they used to be and so what we know of as independent movies are also pretty well available and so you get something like i'll just pull out a movie like all of us strangers where that is that was the example i was gonna use that's an independent movie but it's also you don't have to like dig around to find it it's going to be as part of the awards race andrew scott's maybe gonna get an well hopefully andrew scott's gonna hopefully get an oscar nomination for it and that is a movie that has visible come in it and i've still heard people being like well, you don't see any nudity in that movie. And it's like, where has this Overton window moved on sexuality? <laughs> that this movie with visible cum in the it, other... that people are like dissatisfied that it's not showing enough. The other thing I would say is also in this time, and not to at all wade into TV versus film discourse, but sex on TV was much more common. Uh, yeah. But still, in like mainstream TV, what is Sex in the City if not one of the most mainstream well, ap- appreciated? Sex shows? on networks like Best. HBO and FX and whatever. It's just like like sex on TV has definitely like that window has certainly moved in terms of like what you can sure. see on television now. Yeah. The clip I saw from fellow travelers on my timeline this week, my dear, my darling. Yeah, that's like yeah, you have a television show where. Like, that man's whole-ass foot is in Jonathan Bailey's mouth, and you know what? Oh, I did not see Oh, that was from, like, Maybe not for me. That was from the season uh, premiere. But, like, but you know what I mean? It's just, like, like, that's sort of where we're at now. So, like, it's tough for me to be, like, well... But we're also talking... I mean, like, all the examples we just provided are showing not heterosexual sex. Like, where's the examples of that? I think there's maybe even... I'm not going to say that gay sex is more represented on TV and in film, but like the you're right that the degree the of explicit in Oppenheimer felt like, oh, I haven't seen this in a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, not it's a, to f- say that like there's anything revolutionary about the sex scenes in that movie, but like it felt somewhat uncommon. Yeah. You're not wrong. There's again, this is another one where I'm going to wait for you to see poor things. Um, which I've heard a, a lot about. Poor Thi- well, and Poor Things is also another Searchlight movie, but like Searchlight funded by Disney. I want somebody to write about Poor Things and Eyes Wide Shut as two separate sort of odysseys <laughs> through the world <laughs> in search of sex movies that like uh, that do very different poor things. things. So I know what's coming. And come from very different perspectives. Um, uh, as, I, as I've mentioned to you a few times, my little trip to New York that I took earlier this fall, where I saw in the span of three days, 
All of Us Strangers, May, December, Saltburn, and Poor Things. I was Could like, not have a uh, more far-reaching diagram of sex. There's a real. It's it covers a whole lot of terrain in terms of like sex and cinema in 2023. It really is something. Um, I saw the four real like sex-forward movies of the year. Um, not. I mean, I wouldn't say May December is sex-forward, but no, no, like... no, not sex, not sex-forward, but like four movies that sort of pushed on Main Street. Pushed, put, yeah, put sex on 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 Front Street. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, no, God, don't don't get the Zoomers coming at me with uh, uh, a depiction as endorsement in terms of the the May December conversation. You I mean may to never tell recover. me that people misinterpreted May December as soon as it was on Netflix? I am so surprised. I will say, I'm so shocked. Can't believe it. I still feel like we were successful as a culture in shouting that down immediately, and I'm very proud yeah. of us. Yeah. Um anyway, not to like hairpin turn this or anything, but do it. Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. We know that because every single scene has either Christmas lights or a decorated Christmas tree. And when I tell you that that is Joe Reed culture, it is very much Joe Reed culture. I want every scene Just in so every you know, movie. I bought you a giant Van Gogh art book this year. <laughs> I just like it's there there is something about this movie reminded me of Gremlins in that way, where it's just like so many scenes in Gremlins are like dark room, but colored Christmas lights. And there is something elementally uh, pleasing about that, where like it hits the serotonin uh, distribu- distribution center in my head. And it's very lovely. And I love that. I also love. Well, I mean, get, what is Gremlins if not about, you know, uh, gizmo's dark night of the soul through his sexuality say that write that um i also am like the last person in the world who's not sick of um alternative christmas movie culture like i still i know people say die hard is a christmas movie too often but like i like when i can point out that a non-traditional movie is a christmas movie i watched love the coopers for the first time oh yesterday. talk about this please that is hardly, it's not really, it feels like an alternative Christmas movie because it, it feels like people don't know that this movie exists. Right, but it's, it's about Christmas. I didn't know it was though. a Christmas movie until Matt Jacobs recently wrote about Timothy being Love you, Matt. Movie. Yeah. Uh, listen, Matt Jacobs always on the right side of history and knowing things ahead of time. Matt Jacobs has Matt been genuinely, and I've said this to him, killing it on the freelance front this year he has done he's written so many cool pieces i'm really really enjoying it that's that's a that's a writer worth following out there he's mine we love matt yeah um love the coopers yes is from the seventh layer of christmas hell (laughs) everything in this movie i gotta see so deranged i gotta see it range gotta see it um it it is like the family stones tethered, but it is the underworld tethered. It is, it's fucking weird. <laughs> it's Everyone the one in that abandoned school today. or whatever. Um, that's so funny. Um, what? So wait, I so who are, believe the talent that agreed to be in this movie? Five, five best performances in Love the Coopers go. <laughs> uh, Marissa Tomei. Nice. Uh, you know what? Honestly, Timmy. Um, oh, that's nice to hear. Uh, who? I mean, June Squibb. 
And is this after her? It's got to be like after her nomination for Nebraska, she got cast in everything. Like she was the hottest ticket in Hollywood. This is her cashing in on her Oscar nomination. That's so funny. The dog that Steve Martin voices. Sorry to spoil the ending for you. When I realized at the end, I was like, this is narrated by the dog. I was like, um, why? Why is it narrated by the dog? Because I tell you, this is a Christmas Campbell soup commercial at feature length from hell. Um, oh, no. uh, do I need one more? Um, yeah, um, why not? Uh, John Goodman, because we love him. So wait, did you throw in Diane Keaton at all? Diane Keaton's pretty bad in this movie. Is she really? Oh, no. Innocent, but not good. What's her she like? She's asked to be ridiculous in this movie. What is her Christmas characteristic? Grief and yelling. Oh, like she's like a widow? No, she they had they have a child that passed away. Oh god. And John Goodman's like we should go on vacation and she's like no, I'm grieving and he's like but we could just go on vacation. It would be really nice and she's like our child died. That is disturbing. All right, give me one I'm second. You, it's a Campbell Soup Christmas commercial. But like that to me is that that's a good thing to me. Like I like Campbell oh, Soup. Oh no, like uh one of the worst movies I've ever seen, brackets complimentary. Like uh, I saw you put it as a one-star review on your Because uh, it's horrid. It's a bad movie, but I was entertained at every second. I mean, I do appreciate a movie like that. Like I'm trying to think of what I don't know. Anyway, all right. So with Eyes Wide Shut being an unconventional Christmas movie, I uh, was inspired to bring back our old friend, the Alter Egos game. Yeah. And our theme, Alter Egos is a game, dear listeners, if you are not familiar, where I quiz Chris, where I give him the names of three film characters. Then Chris has to, in his head, or whatever, speaking it aloud, um, identify who played those three roles, and then identify the film that all three of those actors are in together. So, for example, if I said, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of like what's a, I should have like an example off the top of my head, but now I really don't. Um, so for Eyes Wide Shut, if I said. Lieutenant Daniel Caffey and Satine and um who's a third person in this and uh uh um uh the MC from Cabaret. <laughs> um <laughs> you can't pull stage. Sandy Frank, come on. Oh Sandy Frank's a good one. Okay, right, right. Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Satine, and Sandy Frank. That would be A Few Good Men, Moulin Rouge, and Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. No, but that's not the game. You have to identify the actors. Oh, but it's Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tom Cruise, yeah. Nicole yes. Kidman, and Alan Cummings. Yes, and the movie they're all together in is Eyes Wide Shut. Okay, so um, the theme for all these answers are Christmas movies, and they will be both traditional and untraditional Christmas movies. So they all have Christmas uh, at some point place within their within their film whether it's for a scene or two or for the whole movie but they are uh keyword christmas movies all right great this is gonna be fun all right this is our holiday this is our holiday party so like get a little too much eggnog and get a little you know little tipsy and then play this game with your friends if you want um 
Okay, first film. Your characters are Ray Kroc, Martin Weir, and Velma Von Tussle. Velma Von Tussle is Michelle Pfeiffer. This is definitely Batman Returns. Christmas movie that we... We were just on podcast like it's 1992. Yes. Uh, To give us a listen. It was a very fun conversation. Uh, Work out who the other ones were for our fun and enjoyment. Ray Kroc. Say those names again. Ray Kroc and Martin Weir. Martin Weir is Danny DeVito's character in... Get Shorty. Get Shorty. Correct. Good episode. Good This Had Oscar Buzz episode. Yes. Ray Kroc is... The founder of McDonald's. Oh. In The Founder. Le Founder. Uh, Michael Keaton, yes. All right, next question. Your uh, characters are Tully, Diana Spencer, and Ingrid Thorburn. <laughs> Tully is Mackenzie Davis. Uh, Diana Spencer is Kristen Davis. This is Happiest Season. Kristen Stewart. Yes, this is Happiest Season. Kristen Stewart. Sorry. Uh, Ingrid Thorburn. Did I say Kristen Davis? You did say Kristen Davis. Uh, Ingrid Thorburn is. Uh, Aubrey Plaza from Ingrid Goes West. Very good. Yes. All right. Next one. Edward Nigma, Mary Sunshine, and Jenny Humphrey. Edward Nigma is uh, Jim Carrey in Batman Forever. Mary Sunshine is Christine Baranski in Chicago. I don't know the other one, but we're talking about Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yes. Jenny Humphrey Ron is... Howard's Dr. Seuss's yes. How the Grinch Stole Jenny Humphrey is Taylor Momsen on Gossip Girl. You know I throw in TV characters every mm-hmm. once in a while. So, um... Uh, Taylor Momsen as Cindy Lou Who. Yes, shout out to um, uh, Martha May Huvier, uh, uh, POV character from Matt Rogers' uh, Christmas album. All right. Um, next one. Carrie Bradshaw, Erica Berry, and Regina George. Well, Carrie Bradshaw is Sarah Jessica Parker. Erica hmm. Berry is um, Diane Keaton from the First Wives Club? Not the First Wives Club. Something's got a gift. Something's got... Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're obviously talking about the Family Stone. We are. What was the other character? Regina George. Oh, there you go. Uh, Rachel Rachel McAdams from Mean Girls. All right. Next one. Phyllis Schlafly, Erica (laughs) Albright, and Nicole Wallace. Um, Phyllis Schlafly is... Meryl? I know this character name. It's not Meryl. It's not Meryl. Not Meryl. Second character name was what? Erica Albright. Erica Albright. Mm. Oh, this is um, this is the holiday. No, Phyllis Schlafly is not the holiday. It's not the holiday. Never mind. Who did you think Erica Albright was? The Kate Winslet character. I don't character? know. Okay, the, you've used Erica Albright before. I maybe I have. Like I know this, but I don't know this. All right, I'll try another one. Phyllis Schlafly, Lizbeth Salander, Nicole Wallace. Oh, this is Carol. Yes. Because that is, um, that's Rooney Mara. Yes. Erica Albright is Rooney Mara's character in The Social Network. Got it. Got it. Phyllis Schlafly is Truth. No. Phyllis Schlafly is, uh, is a real person. Uh, it was Kate Blanchett in Mrs. America, the miniseries Mrs. America, about the anti-equal uh, rights. Yes. And then Nicole Wallace, who, if you are not a View uh, watcher or an MSNBC watcher, is also a real person. She was Sarah Game Paulson's Change. character in Game Change. Yes. 
Um, all right, next one. Nell Harper Lee, President James Whitmore, and Sandy Cohen. <laughs> Nell Harper Lee is either Sandra Bullock or Catherine Keener. Correct. What were the next one? President James Whitmore and Sandy Cohen. Okay. Sandy Cohen is very familiar. What Christmas movie are either of these actresses in? I'm going to say that it's Sandra Bullock. It is Sandra Bullock. It's Sandra Bullock in While You Were Sleeping. President James Whitmore is Pullman in Independence Day. Yes, Sandy Cohen is Peter Gallagher on the OC. All right, next one. Sherman Klump, Ray Stance, and Deirdre Bobirdra. Sherman Klump is Eddie Murphy. Yes. Deirdre Bobirdra is like a barb and star name. What was the middle one? Ray Stance. Dr. Ray Stance, if you Dr. will. Dr. Ray Stance. But like, Eddie don't Murphy, let the doctor I think, has you. multiple Christmas movies. Yeah, I think that's probably true. This one is some one like Jesusy. No, this one is not Jesusy. But there is one I think that is like vaguely religious. Maybe this one is definitely not. Um, what Christmas movie was he in? Shrek Holiday? No, it's not animated. Um, um Deirdre Bobirdre, you definitely know fully, but maybe have blocked it out for reasons. Reasons, yeah. Ray Stance is like a franchise character from a franchise I think you like are uh, constitutionally opposed to. opposed to. Okay. Is it like Deadpool? No, but it's probably at the level of annoying current cultural conversation these days. It's mm. in recent years. I think this so is it's a, a Marvel character? No. It's a Disney character? No. What's like a legacy property that people are really annoying about? Especially with like recent remakes of it and recent continuations of it. I'm on Christmas brain. I've had too many Christmas cookies. I can't think. Um... Uh, Legacy property that fans got really mad at one remake of it and demanded a ghostbuster there you go yes absolutely i i object ray stance was Aykroyd. dan Aykroyd. oh trading places trading places so who is deirdre oh, Bobirdra? Forget that's a christmas movie yeah deirdre Bobirdra is everything everywhere all at once jamie lee curtis yes all right next one this will be interesting i don't know if you're gonna get this henry sherman ma rainey and isis <laughs> Great. Um uh Marini is Viola Davis. You're not pulling out prisoners on me, are you? I would say Oh, is she not Marini? No. Check your uh pers- check your uh She not the titular role? She is, but that's not the only movie that Marini was in. Got it. Got it. Um, Ma Rainey being a real person. What were the other character names? Henry Sherman and Isis. Henry 
Henry Sherman sounds very familiar. Like that would be a Denzel Washington character. And then I was thinking the preacher's wife. It's not Denzel Washington, but. But it sounds like leading man. How about instead of Henry Sherman? um, uh, I think it's Frank Murtaugh. Murtaugh is the uh, character name. Um. Henry Sherman is not a lead character, is a supporting character in an ensemble comedy from very early aughts by a director who you and I both really like and made a one of the best movies of this year. Mm. Who has made a lot of movies. And this year is probably made one, one of the best movies of this 2023. year we're talking. 2023, yeah. Oh, that's Danny Glover. Yes. Why? Walk oh, us through it. Oh, this is Almost Christmas. Yes. I love Almost Christmas. I love Almost Christmas. Uh, Henry Sherman is Danny Glover in the Royal Tenenbaums, of course. Ma Rainey is Monique in Bessie. She played Ma Rainey opposite- uh, I still have to see Bessie. I know Bessie. People love Bessie. And then want to take a crack at Isis? Who's Isis? Is that- Gabrielle Union in Bring It On? Is her character yes. Isis? Her name is Isis. Very good. Almost Christmas is... It's not a Love the Coopers thing where it's like one star, but I love it. But it's like a solid like B- minus of a Three movie a that is like fun, fun, fun. I really love it. I think it's very funny. Um, all right, next one. Charlotte Flax, Cosette, and Torrance Shipman. Um, Cosette is Amanda Seyfried. Amanda Shipman. Torrance Shipman. Torrance Shipman. And Charlotte Flax. Charlotte. Which is another character name that I definitely Black. know. I would say check your presuppositions on one of those. Claire Danes. Uh, yes. Why? Uh, because of the non-musical labels. There we go. Uh, this can't be Family Stone. You wouldn't do her. Se- well, we also we already did already. Family Stone. Yeah. yeah. What's her other Christmas movie? Torrance Shipman is from a movie we. Oh, it's Little Women. Because Charlotte Flax is Reality Bites. No, no, but it is Winona Ryder. Charlotte Flax is Winona Ryder in Mermaids. Roberta Flax, Charlotte Flax. There you go. Uh, Torrance Shipman is Kirsten Dunst in Bring It On. You're very Bring It On. I'm very. All right, next one. Jefferson Smith, Donna Stone, Ado Annie. Ado Annie Carnes, I guess, but like Ado Annie. Um, That was Gloria Graham, wasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Is this the bad and the beautiful? Bold no, and beautiful? Not the bad and the beautiful. Uh, Jefferson Smith, Donna Stone, and Ado Annie. Jefferson Smith. That's not Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's oh, this is um, this is It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Jefferson Smith is uh, Jimmy Stewart, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Donna yeah. Stone was Donna Reed's character in the Donna Reed Show. Uh, on television, and Ado Annie is Gloria Graham. And okay, what other Donna Reed character was I going to give you that like you could have got Donna Reed? 
You could have sang somewhere that's green to me. <laughs> uh, that's not how we do clues on this. All right, next one. Lucky Day, Trixie Delight, and Mallory Knox. <laughs> okay. Um, these all sound like Zack Snyder characters or something. <laughs> Trixie Delight sounds the most familiar to me. It might be. Given Lucky Day and Mallory Knight, did you say? Mallory Knox. Mallory Knox. Mallory Knox is one of a duo. Mallory and blank. Blank and Mallory. Trixie Delight is from a black and white movie, I'm fairly certain. I don't know why I haven't seen this movie yet, but I haven't. Um, Oscar nominated, but not an Oscar winner. For the performance of Trixie Knight? Of Trixie Delight. Trixie Delight. Trixie Knight does sound like a drag queen. Also, Trixie Delight sounds like a drag queen. Uh, so you said it's, that movie is in black and white, so we're talking about an older Christmas movie. That's another movie that was featured heavily on a season of You Must Remember This. Got it. Um, Where, like, Eyes Wide Shut feels like the centerpiece of a particular season of You Must Remember This. This particular movie, um, feels like a centerpiece of this season, this other season that I'm thinking of. Got it. Lucky Day is one of a trio. Okay. Is this White Christmas? It's not White Christmas. Not that old. Um, Trixie Delight was from a black and white movie from the 70s. The performance was nominated for an Oscar, but lost to a co-star. Oh. Two women nominated together in a black and white movie in the 70s. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. I, I know that listeners are yelling at me right now, but I'm not there. Um 70s lost to a co-star. Oh, is it I'm I'm thinking lead. Is this um Ellen Burstyn? Not Ellen Burstyn. Last picture show? No. Um how else am I going to give this to you? I really thought you'd get this by the character because I think you really love this movie. Um, go backwards through You Must Remember This Seasons. If I can remember them in order. Erotic 90s, erotic 80s. Dead Blondes, Song of the South. Hollywood Babylon. Uh, Dean and Sammy. This one was focused on a uh, screenwriter, producer, wife. Oh, this is, um, was this a Polly Platt one? Yeah. So it's not Last Picture Show? No. What was the other major sort of uh, focus point in that? Besides Last Picture Show and, I mean, Witches of Eastwick. Baby. Um, what's up, Doc? Bottle Rocket. What? Why can't I get this? Polly Platt 
in the 70s. If it's the 70s movies, it's still Bogdanovich. It is... Um, okay, so it's not Last Picture Show. How about if I give you this? Inspector Clouseau, Trixie Delight, Mallory Knox. Inspector Clouseau? That's Peter Sellers? Or? Steve Martin? Yes. Did you give me mixed nuts and I, it took me this long to yes. get that movie that I love? Yes! Uh, problematic fave, mixed nuts. Who do we think Trixie uh, Delight is? Oh, is it Paper Moon? Yes. I do like, I haven't seen Paper Moon in so long, okay. but it's Madeline Kahn, who I also love. This is such an embarrassment that this took me so long. Any guess who Mallory Knox is? One half uh, of Mickey and Mallory. For Tatum O'Neill? No. Tatum O'Neill's not in Mixed Nuts, I don't believe. Oh, 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 sorry. Why am I still on Paper Moon? Um, uh, that is... Natural Born Killers, Juliette Lewis. There you go. Yeah. All right. Damn it. I'm I'm so mad that that took me so long. I'm like the I'm only person that knows. So surprised. This. Uh, all right. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Carla, Ben Wyatt, and Champ Kind. <laughs> is it Tony Collette for Connie and Carla? It is Tony Collette for Connie and Carla. Uh, this is Krampus. This is Krampus. Yes, people people have come around on Krampus. I remember really liking Krampus in theaters, and now maybe people are doing too much for Krampus. Listen, but... can't do too much for Krampus. You gotta appease that Krampus. Ben Wyatt is Adam Scott in Parks and Recreation. Champ Kind is David Koechner in Anchorman. Sure. Uh, all right, next one: Lester Burnham, Judy Garland, Winifred Banks. Kevin Spacey is Lester Burnham. Yes. Winifred Banks is Diane Keaton in Father of the Bride. What was that middle nope, name? Nope. Uh, you're thinking of Nina Banks. She is Nina Banks in Father oh, of the Bride. Oh, okay. Yeah. Winifred Banks is Peter Pan. Nope. But you're getting closer. Hook. No. Different story. Not that story. What's the middle name? Uh, Judy Garland. <laughs> it's a little someone oh. named Judy Garland. Renee Zellweger. No. Judy Garland from television. Oh, um, uh, Judy Davis. Yes. Judy. Oh, the ref. This is the ref. The ref. And guess who Winifred Banks is? That. Who else is in the ref? You didn't put Dennis Leary in there. I know I didn't. I didn't want to find a Dennis Leary role that you could recognize. Um, uh, Winifred Banks with what I just said, Mrs. Banks. Saving um, Mrs. Banks. Mrs. Bonks. Uh, it's uh 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 who else is in that movie? It's Glennis Johns and Mary Poppins, just to move oh, us along. It is Glennis Johnson. Of Poppins. course. I All right. love Glennis Johnson. Only a few more. I haven't seen the ref in a very The Ref rules. The ref is really good. I'm sorry that Kevin Spacey is in it, but the ref rules. Um Jupiter Jones, Eleanor Shellstrop, and Doc Ock. Doc Ock is Alfred Molina? Nope. Doc Ock is who is it in the new ones? Was that that wasn't Gyllenhaal? That was Think Animated. Oh, oh, um, <laughs> Catherine Hahn. Yes, 
Um, okay, so Catherine Hahn. Who this is, is the holiday? Ju- this is not the holiday. Uh, who, who is Jupiter Jones? Jupiter Ju- Ascending, Mila Kunis. There you go. Mila Kunis and Catherine You Hahn. got that way too fast for how long you took Mixed Nuts, that you got Jupiter Ascending. I know. Immediately. Listen, the Jupiter Ascending <laughs> Defender is logging uh, in. There are uh, a lot of Jupiter Ascending Defenders. I think you're all out of your minds. Um... Uh, Eleanor Shellshop is from TV. You're not going to get it. But who has Mila Kunis and Catherine Hahn? You should be able to get the movie. Is it, it Bad Moms? A Bad Moms Christmas. There you go. Bad Moms Christmas. <laughs> I never saw that. Eleanor Shellstrop is Kristen Bell in The Good Place. Yeah. Uh, Ramona. I never watched The Good Place. Uh, it's good. It's a good place. Uh, Ramona. Miss Meadows. Jennifer Lopez. This is no. Made in Manhattan. No. Ramona. Miss Meadows. Benjamin Coffin the Third. Okay, so Jesse L. Martin. Nope. Oh, Tay Diggs. Yes. Um, what happened to Benny? What happened to his heart? <laughs> the ideals he once pursued. Uh, who's our mis- listeners who never understand what our outgoing message is on our Patreon call, and it drives me wild. I'm like, do you people not listen? It's what it's if you're not waiting for it, it goes by very quickly, and you like you're not. You're, it threw me for a second too. I was like, wait, what is that? Um, Fine. maybe I'll change it. No, don't change it ever. Um, who else is named Ramona? Oh, is this Selena Gomez? No, <laughs> haven't you pulled out Ramona and Beezus to me before? It is Ramona and Beezus, but uh, um, it's the other one. It's even older Sel- than that. It's even older than Ramona and Beezus. I think this was also a TV movie. Ugh. Who's Miss Meadows? A movie I only uh, know. Coon. No, a movie I only know as a. I guess it's not even like a, a DVD cover anymore. It's a um a poster on a streaming site as I scroll past movies that I want to watch. Um, <laughs> um, it's a titular role, Miss Meadows. It's a self-directed role. I'm pretty sure. Wait, now I want to make sure, but I think so. It's a real infamous poster. Like you'd know you'd know it if you saw it. Um No, it's not self-directed. I she directed another she directed herself in something else around this time. Sorry. Sorry to mislead you. Um Who played Ramona in the earliest adaptation of Ramona Quimby? Do you remember? I don't think I know. Okay. It's tough to do another character by this actor. Um Actor director, Oscar Female winner. Actor director, Oscar, Oscar winner, recent Oscar winner, very recent Oscar winner. Ch- not Jamie Lee Curtis. Nope. Not Michelle Yeoh. Nope. It's not Frances McDormand. No, but I'm doing my Frances McDormand impression. <laughs> I'm looming. Imagine my face looming. I don't. Who am I looming what, over? What are you trying to lead me towards? I, who? I'm, if I'm Francis McDormand's big, giant, frowning face, who's in front of me? What Oscar winner is in front of me? While oh. I'm, what Oscar winner is? Oh, the. 
I know what you're trying to do. I just can't get there. It's it's not uh, Ariana DeVoe. No, no it's. Uh, <laughs> are you talking about the the looming in front of Sarah Polly? Yes, yes, Sarah Polly. Okay, Sarah Polly. I'm gonna have to put that in the Tumblr. Um, <laughs> Sarah Polly in a Christmas movie with oh, Tay it's Dick. go, it's go, it's go. Have you ever seen the poster from Katie Holmes and Miss Meadows where she's got the like housewife no, dress on and I she's haven't. pulling a gun? She's holding the. Hold on. I'm sending this to you in the chat. You need to see. You need to know. You need to experience. Well, great. There she is with her gun. All right. Why do you want to watch this? I don't want to watch it. I just want what you to see. What did I think that Carrie Coon in the post was? Not Miss Meadows. Meadows. Miss Many Penny? Um, uh, all right. Last one. T.E. Lawrence, Mrs. Venable, and James Bond. All right. Um, Mrs. Venable is Catherine Hepburn. From? T.E. Lawrence is Peter O'Toole. This is The Lion in Winter. The, the Lion, Lion in Winter? In Winter. Yes. T.E. Lawrence from Lawrence of Arabia. Mrs. Venable is Catherine Hepburn from Suddenly Last Summer. And James Bond is, of course, Timothy Dalton from whatever James Bond movies Timothy Dalton was James Bond in. All right. Well done at that chaotic and excruciating. How dare game. you? <laughs> All right. Let's go into the Oscar uh, uh, ness of Eyes Wide Shut, which definitely had Oscar buzz, but had all sorts of other buzz that I think overwhelmed the, the Oscar buzz. Was probably before people saw. Oh, yeah. Once too, it opened because... and people, then the reviews came out. Like that was, it was. But I remember thinking very specifically. Oh, this is the movie where Nicole Kidman is going to get her first Oscar nomination because right, it didn't happen with Do you To think Die it's For. It's a lead or supporting performance. I know that people are kind of all. Over I used to think it was a lead. Now I think it is supporting. I I, I every time I see this movie, I'm like, she really is in less and less of this movie. And I know that like when she is in the movie, she's like the most important character on screen. But like, and not to be like a screen a uh, screen time queen about it. And like normally I'm not, but. I just think it's his, it's such his movie. And, and it's about male sexuality, et cetera, but I, I still think she's a little. I think it's borderline. That's fine. Um, but I remember the To Die For thing. She was so, like, so close to the nomination there. And I remember mm-hmm. that To Die For. There's a lot going on that year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, but that was the first time that she really got respect for a movie. And the thing I was sort of talking about early on when we started talking was, um, two hours ago, um, was that because The Portrait of a Lady sort of came and went without a ton of notice, I know Barbara Hershey got the Oscar nomination for it, but still, I think as a Nicole Kidman project, it was very, very quietly received. I think Eyes Wide Shut was really, for a lot of people, the next sort of moment of Nicole Kidman getting respect for an acting performance on screen. For even the people who didn't like Eyes Wide Shut all made mention of how good Mm -hmm. Kidman was in it. And so I think, ultimately, this movie had too much bad buzz to get Oscar nominations all, when it was all said and done. But I think this is a definitely a crucial step towards two years later when she would get her first big breakthrough nomination for Moulin Rouge. Absolutely. Um, in terms, I think it's a pivot point for her in terms of her career, too, because she's so director-focused and very... Mm-hmm outspoken about how she follows the directors too and at this point in her career 
she's working with Campion, she's working with Kubrick, she's working with Gus Van Sant, too. It's really funny how the two of them... I, I made the joke in the plot description about how, like, the dying embers of their marriage or whatever, but, like, after this movie, the fact that they got divorced within two years of this movie coming out, and also they, the, the way that this movie sent them both careening off into completely opposite career ter- uh, directions, where he mm-hmm. became much, much more interested in controlling his projects, and she became much more interested in working with these visionary directors and these sort of avant-garde and and interesting directors and it's so funny that like working with kubrick like i don't know what you know i don't know what's actually happening in either one of their minds but like my perception of that working with kubrick sent tom cruise into being like i cannot do that again do this again and nicole (laughs) kidman being like i might want to try to do that again um it's really, really fascinating to me and and sort of plays into maybe my preconceived notions, but it's also like my notions of like, I didn't arrive at these opinions of these two people out of the blue. Like it's, you know, their careers have made me, have given me my opinions of these people. And I find her to be a more adventurous actor than he is. And I don't think that's a controversial opinion, even among people I mean, who really like Tom I kind of Cruise. see it in the way that they talk about their experience with this movie and Stanley Kubrick in particular. Tom Cruise gives you the party line. Um, Tom Cruise especially gives you the party line on yes. how this movie was altered and censored um, because there is lots of controversy. Around, like Every critic talked about it and yeah. Even the people that hated this movie talked about what a catastrophe it was that, you know, they're digitally inserting people into this movie to cover naughty bits and thrust. And it's so stupid, but it's also the least interesting thing about this movie to me. But that Cruise, as part of the production team, was like, well, Stanley Kubrick meant to put out an R-rated movie. So he did intend to have this specifically put into the movie, Um, which I think is kind of bullshit. But narc. What a narc. Um, I would feel, but to to my point, uh, Nicole Kidman, when she talks about this movie, is so effusive and, you know, yeah. borderline emotional talking about Stanley Kubrick and how they connected and what this movie meant for her career and her, you know, evolution as an actress feels much more natural. Yeah, yeah. And Cruz, like I said, is the party line. Well, and it also makes you wonder how much more comfortable as an actress. And like, it's not like Kidman hasn't gone into, you know, some degree of behind the scenes producing, but it's like she's not even like on a level of like, certainly not like a Reese Witherspoon. You know what I mean? In terms of like this determination that Reese has to find projects, produce projects, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Whereas like Kidman really does feel like, Somebody who is very comfortable. I don't know if submitting is the word you want to use in the context of all of this, but like give like being a vessel for the vision. Yes, essentially, yes. And that is her strength as an actress. Mm-hmm. And that is something and like and Cruz is very much like he's a producer. He is a sort of shadow director. He is somebody who has never actually directed a movie, but probably has directed like several movies. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. and, and his has, has, you know, become much, much more, um, it's funny that like Magnolia probably doesn't happen 
were Cruz a couple of years after this, right? Where like he has he really doesn't put himself in service to auteurs like that anymore, ever. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think it'll ever happen again. <laughs> no. And I mean, why should it, considering that like everybody is so willing to give him full control over anything and 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 why would he why would he go back to being you know uh, that it's it's worked out so well for him this other way um but it's why i like kidman better it's like it's it's not a thing it's like i didn't just decide you know one day randomly to like not be a tom cruise guy <laughs> it's that this kind of thing makes me like other people better and this kind of thing that he does this sort of hyper control this hyper um sort of protectiveness over his image this I find off-putting personality trait where he keeps trying to be so impressive in terms of these like death-defying stunts in a way that to me feels like a very the man wants tra- to die on screen very Here transparent like like uh, having a decade long if not more crisis about aging and decades long i think at this point crisis about aging and i i just don't none of that appeals to me and i i know that like there are a lot of people who are very into the tom cruise movie star project of it all and as a person who loves movie stars i get it in theory i just don't like the way he does it and well and i think the shame of it is I would advocate for Eyes Wide Shut being among his best performances and probably the most fascinating movie for his star persona. Yeah. I mean, I know plenty of people advocate for the Mission Impossible movies for being like the emblem of Tom Cruise's star persona, but I think Eyes Wide Shut is in a much more interesting way. Um, In a way that like almost feels... I don't know. Maybe Cruz thinks he flew too close to the flame with this because it feels almost in him revealing nothing of himself in this performance. It also feels like he's exposing a part of himself. Not to not to put you. Maybe he wasn't a willing participant as much uh, in what Kubrick's vision was in that way or didn't uh, respond to it. But it really does feel like a complete redirect away from this type of movie in any way for the rest of his career. The fact that his next big movie after this, he doesn't have a movie in 2000, right? I'm trying to like, what's what's the actual filmography? The next, the next movie that he's in is Mission Impossible 2. Right. And then Vanilla Sky. That's the thing. So like the next sort of Mission Impossible 2 being a sequel and whatever, but like Vanilla Sky... Is such a fascinating companion piece to this. We got to do Vanilla Sky for the Patreon. Um, but like the way that Vanilla Sky, and it's, you know, it's a remake. So it's not like anybody wrote this movie about Tom Cruise, but you could not have picked a more fascinating star for that movie because it really is all about how it's not all about. I keep caveating myself. Why do I talk this way, Chris? Why is this the manner in which I've decided? I think to, I'm rubbing off on you because I talk. I'm this so way. like I double back on everything. I sound like a lunatic. Vanilla Sky as a comment on Tom Cruise's star persona is absolutely fascinating. The way it in which it totally destabilizes him to lose his sort of famous good looks or whatever, Face. and and it's it's such an odd dismantling and. It's like that and Eyes Wide Shut together are 
really fascinating as the sort of end of Tom Cruise's career as a certain type of leading man, which is a type of leading man who was a romantic leading man in any way. Do you know what I mean? He's had love storylines in his movies since then, but it's it's not in any way comparable to his movies in the 90s, 80s and 90s. You're far and away, you're Jerry Maguire's, you're that kind of a thing. And as I said in the group chat recently, they should have given him his Oscar for Jerry Maguire. It's still kind of shocking that they didn't. It's one of the most, I think they didn't in part because they figured they'd have, it's also why they didn't give it to him for Magnolia. I think they figured, well, we'll have plenty of opportunities in the future to do this. And it just, you know, it didn't happen. And you look at all of these movies where it's like, there is a, there's so many movies that have a token love story in it, like Last Samurai or mm-hmm. um, movies that there's the love story simply because Oblivion. there has to be a love story uh, in this know, formula. Right. But there are so many more of them that are like conspicuous for their lack of love story. The fact that like he doesn't have a love story in War of the Worlds at all is just odd because like most Holly, most like action block blockbusters like that will write in a character to be, you know, he ends that movie sort of like backing away from his old nuclear family or whatever. Something like, did you ever see the movie night and day with Heming Cameron Diaz? I never watched that. I have, and I cannot still could not tell you whether they have a romantic component to their story in that movie or not. I think that they do, but I think it's so perfunctory and 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 poorly sold that like I genuinely can't remember. Um, same thing with Edge of Tomorrow. I'm like, are he and Emily Blunt romantic in that movie, or is that just like not the way that 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 I remember that movie? Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's right. it's incredible. Even something like Top Gun Maverick, where he has a romantic storyline with Jennifer Connelly. But it feels like the ghost of a version of Tom Cruise is is going through those scenes mm-hmm. where it's just like it's it's very much not the movie that he even wants to be making. And I think just all those parts of him have atrophied by this point. And it's it made me like for as much as I liked the one thing I liked about Top Gun Maverick more than anything, beyond the fact that like it did remind us that Glenn Powell is his movie star. Um, speaking of, I love movie stars. Um, but I was like, I'm glad that Jennifer Connelly is getting to be in a big hit like this and whatever. But then you watch that and it's just like, man, this movie really can't get through these scenes with the two of them together fast enough, <laughs> like, uh, to get to the other parts of the movie that it's more interested. In. Anyway, my point being is just that, like, I'm at least during this part of his career, Eyes Wide Shut and Vanilla Sky. I at least found him a fascinating subject, if not uh, um, somebody who, even by this point, I think I was a little bit out on the Tom Cruise thing. And I was like, I was a Tom, I was a, a Few Good Men fan from back in the day. Tom Cruise was probably my favorite actor when I was, you know, a tween to teenager. You know what I mean? Like that was. Along with lots of people. Um, and He wouldn't even make A Few Good Men today. No! 
let alone eyes wide shut. Although that's it's, another movie that like very consciously sidesteps the idea of a romance. That's that's um mm-hmm. uh, an interesting one. But yeah, um I agree with you. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um in terms of like it's too bad this movie didn't get more Oscar attention because like the elements this is a movie where like a lot of craft elements are really really good stuff. Like mm-hmm. um for as kind of funny as I find it that they're trying to pass off London as New York. Like this is a movie with really good art direction and production design. Um not even London. Backlots. Right. Right. Studio sets. Right. Um cinematography I think is really well done. The way it cuts from these sort of steady shots on on certain characters. The scene where uh, they're arguing Every time the it comes to between cruise. like the beige of everyday life and then that electric cerulean that comes in through the windows. Mm-hmm. And then you get to Fidelio, which just feels like mm-hmm. flame and embers. How many times have we said embers in this episode? Embers. Take a shot every listen, you're you're at home during the holidays. Get lit with us. Take a shot every time we've said embers in this episode. What do you think of the score in this movie, which gets a lot of mileage out of pling? Pling, pling. <laughs> it got a Golden Globe nomination. It's a good for score. That score. It's a really good. It's score. It's one of those things where I'm sure it wasn't Oscar eligible because there is pre-existing music throughout. Yeah. Um. I I mean, very atonal Kubrickian mm-hmm. score. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. of of course he uses pre-existing music so famously throughout his career. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's a stunning movie to look at. Should be an art direction. I mean, that's one thing about the Fidelio sequence, which it's like, you can imagine a version of these movies Mm -hmm. where it's like they just show up at a mansion and start filming. So it's like, what is the art direction? But when you're talking about a Stanley Kubrick movie, you know that that is not the case. And these are probably sets. Right. Um, Oh, can we talk about for one second, speaking of uh, art direction and costume stuff, um, Nicole's glasses in this movie, which I think ought to be in the Academy Museum. Um, <laughs> yeah, that shot of her, her looking at him across the room while she's helping their daughter with the homework, which is, I think, one of the most iconic images in the movie, mm-hmm. like, to the true sense of the word, not the overuse of the word. But uh, what an evocative performer she is and how she knows how cameras work with actors and such. Yeah. Just the complete and utter, like, fire conviction of soul that she brings to this character. It's also a very conscious filmmaking choice of, like, the person she is when she has glasses on. She's the mom. She's the domestic. She's, like, you know, she's she's doing chores. She's carrying out tasks. And, like, that's the last thing she does before they leave for the party at the very beginning is she takes her glasses off and puts them on the shelf. You know what I mean? Like, that's... It's like, okay, well, now I'm going into arm candy mode now i'm going into wife at a fancy party mode and well and the the movie really knows that too because like that shot well you know we see out of context in the movie all the time and like that's strangely one of the most like memorable images of the movie is that shot of her with the glasses on looking at her across the room Mm -hmm. and in the context of the movie it's overlaid with her monologue again where she's sobbing and kind of pouring her soul out where it's like mm-hmm. that you know veneer of this is who i am this is who i present to the world mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. the opposite where all of that is stripped away yeah in what we're hearing is 
a really distinct moment in the movie that always catches me off guard. Talk to me about the Venetian masks in the Fidelio. <laughs> the variety of them, what's being communicated with them. Okay, the shot of the two people up in the balcony that like people always see. The to sleep reference. no more guy. Is that supposed to be Sidney Pollock up there? I think we're su- we're meant to think that, yeah. But also, I think it's also very intentional that it's all plausible deniability. You're never really supposed to know for right. sure who Sidney Pollock is. I've heard some people say, like, there's a theory that Sidney Pollock is the guy in the red robe. And I'm like, no, no, no. I don't think so at all. I don't know, man. He doesn't have that in him. Um, He's just a guy. Should we? Should we? Bad guy. Should we start maybe uh, sweeping up the floor on this? And and yeah, we can sweep up the floor. I mean, there's a lot that I think is. You could talk about this movie for like six hours, but like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like there, there's a you know the lore of this movie. I think has been so picked apart that I'd be surprised if a lot of our listeners weren't familiar with you know the length of the filming of this movie, how reshoots were done again and again to the point where. Previous actors, most famous among them, Jennifer Jason Lee and Harvey Keitel, had to be replaced because they weren't available. Who was Jennifer Jason Lee? Was she the widow or the the, the daughter of the? I believe the old man? she was the daughter, if I remember correctly. That makes sense. The daughter who is like suddenly so horny for Tom Cruise that she's like willing to have sex on the day. She's willing to throw it all, throw throw it all away for right, for right. Doctor Bill. I believe that's who she was. Yeah. Um. Dr. Bill showing his credentials multiple times in this movie is so funny, mostly because I've never actually seen that in a movie ever. I've never seen, I can't think of another movie (laughs) character who's a doctor who shows his doctor credentials like they're an FBI badge, and he does it three times in this movie. It's so funny. It's like he went to NYU, he tells you (laughs) what he does so much. He's like... I'm a doctor, by the way, I'm a doctor. When I'm doing doctor things, because you know... I was a Tish. I was a Tish major in uh, musical theater. I was, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, long story. I went to NYU. I'm a doctor. Yeah, bury uh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what are there? My other LMAO. These lunatic homophobes. Um, the psychology of the masks. Like, While I've talked about the marketing of this movie being a detriment to its reception if only we could just have a 30 second teaser and then a one minute trailer for movies these days when we're so oversaturated that, and especially like during award season for audiences that can't go to festivals live outside of new york and la where things are screened constantly like i'm sure people are sick of poor things before they even get to see poor well things. meanwhile though so many behind the scenes things and trailers and this is maybe if every article that could possibly have been written about the films of 1999 has probably all already been written. But here's my maybe last. This is the last ever podcast episode on Eyes Wide Shut. We are the last people to talk about it. This is also maybe the last available take on 1999, which is it was <laughs> perhaps the last golden age for movie teasers slash trailers. Not in terms of, but in terms of like in the same year. You had the Phantom Menace trailer that, like, goosed the box office of a totally other movie. You had the Eyes Wide Shut teaser where they're making out in front of the mirror that hit the culture like a bomb. Like an actual bomb was detonated when that started. And also I'm going to throw in there. Blair Witch. 
Well, Blair Witch, okay, yes, I will also throw Blair Witch in, but also the trailer for being John Malkovich, I think, is like low-key one of the that's another one where independent movie, small little movie, nobody knows what the fuck this is. And that trailer had everybody talking. Like genuinely, like that that trailer put that into the second they like Octavia Spencer crowbarred that elevator door open and he walks out <laughs> under that like 35th and a half floor or whatever. Um, that's that, you know, that whole thing, um, that movie was like completely like thrust into the zeitgeist. And like, I remember, I remember the first time I saw that trailer in a theater and I remember being like absolutely knocked on my ass. And I was like, what is this? I have to see this movie. I remember seeing that movie completely blind with my sister and my dad. They knew what the hell we were seeing. I didn't. And I was the only one that liked it. Nice. Taste. The taste jumped out. All right. Um, yeah, I think I think 99, 99 bad Oscars would be made so much better with several Eyes Wide Shut nominations. It's interesting. You know, uh, you would uh, on paper, you think that. Posthumously for Kubrick, it would be you know, just carrying on mm-hmm. the tradition of the Barry Lyndons, the Clockwork Oranges, where it's like, he had four Best Director nominations. 2001, famously not a Best Picture nominee. Right. And, you know, Eyes Wide Shut is really the only time we can talk about it. I mean, The Shining is definitely not that type of thing, and that movie was critically fairly reviled at the time, and I think... And was the- reevaluated. At some point, of, of course, because like their reevaluation is, you know, par for the course for a Kubrick movie, where even the movies that I think were most understood at the time mm-hmm. still had a high degree of controversy. Like people got a Clockwork Orange when the Clockwork Orange came out, but was incredibly controversial. Yeah. People got Dr. Strangelove when it came out, right. but it also incredibly politically controversial. Mm-hmm. And you know, Barry Lyndon, like, maybe is the most understood and appreciated, but even so, there was wide critical debate about that movie, not just because of its length. Uh, Wait, can we talk about these Blockbuster Entertainment Awards for a second? Absolutely. <laughs> Where who, who was the most reliable to show up for Eyes Wide Shut? Not the Globes, not the Oscars but the Blockbuster Entertainment Award. I relate to this because the first time I saw this movie was on Blockbuster Video. Like, I, did, I didn't I did see it in theaters. I saw it when it came out on video. Um, and I wonder if a lot of other people sort of, like, took the same tack. Um, it's so funny to think about this as, like, a three-time Blockbuster Entertainment Award uh, nominee. nominee. For In Drama Romance, apparently there were only three romantic dramas that year because every category <laughs> had these three. three movies. Yes! Kidman wins for actress against Rene Russo in The Thomas Crown Affair and Robin Wright in Message in a Bottle. Yes. Cruz is nominated in Favorite Actor against Pierce Brosnan, who wins for Thomas Crown Affair, and Kevin Costner for Message in a Bottle. I think the most unhinged and deranged of them is the favorite supporting actor in drama, romance, where Sidney Pollack is nominated. Honestly, the taste. Um, <laughs> the taste, the quality. You and your suspenders. The correctness. Yeah. But then they nominate Paul Newman and Message in a Bottle, and Dennis Leary, the aforementioned Dennis Leary, in Thomas Crown Affair, who wins. 
Imagine giving an acting award to Dennis Leary I think- over Sidney Pollack and Paul Newman. <laughs> Question, is this during the time of Dennis Leary on that firefighter show? No, that was that famously after? a post-9-11 show. So, um, oh, right, right. Rescue Me? Rescue Me, yep. Rescue Me, just a, t- a TV show that is absolutely gone. But this is no around one. the time where, like, because remember, he was in Wag the Dog, he was in... Um, that one movie with Janine Garofalo, he was in, um... Not a bad actor. No, but, but like, like, they were really, like, making a go of him as an as an actor at this point. He's had his moments. He's, you know... I mean, The Ref, we just talked about The Ref, he's great in that movie. Um, uh, so, yes. Um, Sidney Pollack is great in Eyes Wide Shut, and still, I think, nominating him in Supporting Actor is so demented that I might have to put it on my uh-huh. ballot when we hit episode. Oh, shit. Oh, well. I'll, I'll be prepared. Do it. I'll be prepared. Much like Scar and the Lion King, I will be prepared. Um, all right. All right. There we go. Be prepared as a song about forming a gay union. I mean, maybe we don't want to sign ourselves onto that because there was like explicit SS imagery in that musical number. So yeah, never mind. I take that. <laughs> we're we're going through enough. Scar is just gay. We're going through enough the, public the relations. Aren't gay. Public Scar relations is just wise. Gay. Yeah, no. Scar is very gay. Scar is canonically gay. Scar is a gay Nazi. Yeah. Listen, we're not ready to have that conversation, but it's here. Like Scar is a gay Nazi. Um. All right. All right. Eyes wide shut. We could keep going on. Every listeners have things to do. It's the holidays. It's true. It's true. People have should we shopping uh, should to do we... for their kids and fucking to do with their partners, and we want to give mm-hmm. them leave to do both of those things. So you can't do everything in FAO Schwartz. You know, you got to go find <laughs> that kid you lost. Once again, I, my mind is brought back to the Senate bottom, and, and who knows what's gotten up to at FAO Schwartz. I don't know, man. Oh boy! Oh boy! Know. Oh boy! Oh boy! Joe, would you like to yeah. talk to our listeners Pull us about out of the this IMDb game? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with the name of an actor or actress, and we try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television shows, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After that, two uh, sorry, after two wrong guesses. We get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, and that's the most fun part. Uh, That's the IMDb game. What's the vibe? Are you giving or guessing first? I'll guess first. Although I wonder if you've picked the same one that I have now that I think about it. We'll see. Oh, maybe not. We'll go back to the drawing board if so. Yeah. Uh, So... Uh, the movie, we didn't really talk about this much, stars Todd Field, whose films we love. He's made yes. a trio of films that are each sensational in their own very different Indeed. way. I went towards his erotic drama, Little Children, sure. which starred none other than Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson we've never done. Okay. A really underrated performance that I really yes. think deserves its day still. Patrick Wilson, any television? There is no television. Justice for Joe Pitt in uh, Angels in America. Justice for Patrick's... He's flayed. He can be anything you want him to be. That butt's flapping in the Montauk breeze. Um, okay. Uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Correct. Um... 
uh, The Conjuring. Correct. Insidious. Correct. Are you going to get a perfect score on Patrick Wilson? Oh, I don't know. So my question, my, 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 my uh, dilemma, as it were, is do I go for any of the sequels to either The Conjuring or Insidious? There's so many sequels. There are so many, but like many of them are just in a soup together. You know, he directed, I think, one in each franchise. Yeah, I think that's probably right. That's listen, that man has a real nice ass house, probably a couple of them because of the money that he has made off of those franchises. He is allowed to do whatever he wants. For he, Mr. Dagmar Dominschik, 100%. Whatever he wants. Those two are a wonderful couple. Adore her. Adore them. All right, I'm going to throw in a curveball, and I will probably be wrong, but I'm going to say Watchmen. Incorrect. Yeah, okay. No perfect score for you this Christmas. Conjuring Part 2. Incorrect. Your year is 2005. Oh. Pre-Conjuring, pre-Insidious. Pre-Little Children. No. Little Children is 2004. No, it's not. It's 2006. Is it? Yeah. Uh, I guess it is. Uh, 2004, Kate was nominated for Eternal Sunshine. 2006, she was nominated for Little Chippen. Got it. Got All right. Oh, five, not Phantom of the Opera, which was oh, four. Um, so right after Phantom of the Opera, is it like the Alamo? Incorrect. I'm also looking this up because like the Alamo, do we lose this movie in time? Because I think it came, it was... Festival 05, release 06, and that is correct. Is it the one with uh, Elliot Page where um, Hard Candy? Hard Candy? Really? God! That is a movie that is both uh, total junk and yet quite watchable. (laughs) Until the parts we have to, like, turn your head away from the screen. But, like, Like, Elliot Page just sort of is on one, and uh, I'm happy. I'm happy for that performance. All right. Um, ah, so close and yet so far to a perfect score. All right. For you, good sir, I went the Kubrick route. I uh, traversed the Stanley Kubrick filmography. I, of course, landed on the great Shelley Duvall. Ah! And so I'm going... Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. Known for no television, so no Shelley Duvall's fairytale theater. Um, this is fun because it's like, what all? The Shining is definitely there. Correct. Popeye is there. Correct. Um, Nashville. Incorrect, surprisingly so. Okay. Okay, there's a million people in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Three Women has to be there then. Yes, correct. One more. You know, honestly, no, I can't say that. I can't say that. I was almost like favorite Altman, but then, I mean, <laughs> Nashville. I've never seen Three Women. I need to see that. Whoo, boy. You want to talk about a vibes movie? You want to talk about a wavelength smooth? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, d- d- fucking masterpiece. Like, uh, I don't know. Ari Aster needs to give regular donations to the Robert Altman estate because that movie clearly influenced his work. Um, all right. So I still have one left. It's got to be Annie Hall, right? It is That's Annie Hall. I would have never guessed Annie Hall. I never think of her in that movie. Well done. Good job. She's so funny in that movie. You cleared that one. You nearly got that one. You only had one wrong guess. One, uh, very well done. Um, 
I don't know if I I would have definitely guessed The Shining and Popeye. I'm trying to think of like what other ones. I should. I mean, I being that it's a Best Picture winner, Annie Hall probably for yeah SEO reasons is higher in that. Album. I would have definitely guessed Nashville. Um, I guess it's not a ton of actual movies now that I sort of look at the filmography. She's in fewer movies than you would think. Hi. I'm Shelly Duvall. I definitely remember Shelly Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. that was in her notes before, I would have been so happy. That to... was a... I don't even know if I watched the actual fairy tale so much, but I was so aware of... Because I didn't have HBO at the time, but like whenever we would get a free preview weekend, they would really emphasize Shelly Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater because they were like, something for the kids, and it was like their one thing for kids. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Good episode. God, long episode, Great good episode. episode. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas, if you celebrate. If not, we hope you are enjoying some relaxing times ahead of the new year. Yes. We'll be back on New Year's Day. Yeah, we oh, we should announce this here. So next month, in the month oh, of Oh, yeah, good call. Uh, another plug for our Patreon. We have a sponsor-level tier on the Patreon. We haven't advertised it because much to our surprise... Uh, it's full up. It, yeah. it filled up when we launched our Patreon, basically immediately. As of recording, there are some slots. If you wish to join the sponsor level, we call you our sugar daddies. Uh, basically, everyone at this tier, if you stick with it for three consecutive months, you get to choose an episode on the main feed. What are we going to be doing in the month of January for five episodes? We are choosing... Uh, after our heat episode kind of launched this, we are doing a Patreon selects month of all movies all chosen January. by our sponsors. Yes, uh, it's going to be fun. There'll be some good we're ones. Going to be yeah. doing. Uh, we're going to Diva Town this month. We are doing movies not in the English language. Yeah, we are doing musicals. We are doing... Uh, Joe, what are some other hints to get the ideas percolating? I mean, what are we doing? We are gonna do... Um... Very actress-heavy month. Some gay shit. We're gonna do some actressy... Act- like, there's some actressy. The continent of Europe? Yes, the continent of Europe uh, shows up heavily in this, as does yeah, the oh, Catholic cinema? Church. I feel like the Catholic Church uh, in, inserts itself, and um, yeah, January Patreon selects month. Get get ready into it. And if uh, slots are open and you feel so inclined to become one of our sugar daddies, yes. uh, we love you, Gary. That's true. That is our episode. Yes. If you want more, of this had Oscar buzz. You can check out the Tumblr at this had Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at this had Oscar buzz. And you can also follow us on Patreon if you don't already at patreon.com slash this had Oscar buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Um, Letterboxd, Blue Sky. I'm at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mebius for their technical guidance, Taylor Cole for our theme music. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. 
five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please do not take off your masks and let him go. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. And I hope that that tracks on audio to know <laughs> what I'm doing. Bye.